Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thanks for listening to Creative Control. Uh, While I have you here, please consider supporting Youth Empowerment and Support Services, otherwise known as YES. Based in Edmonton, Alberta, YES provides immediate and low-barrier overnight and day shelter, temporary supportive housing, and individualized wraparound supports for young people aged 15 to 24. They work collaboratively within a network of care focused on the prevention of youth homelessness by providing youth with the necessary supports to stabilize their housing, improve their well-being, build life skills, connect with community, and avoid re-entry into homelessness. Learn more about how to donate or otherwise support YES by visiting YESS.org. Hey, this is Adam from Toronto, and I support Creative Control because Vish is full stop one of the best arts interviewers in Canada, or anywhere in the world, really. He approaches every episode like he's known the artist for years, creating a conversational atmosphere that gets straight to the heart of the work. No one else in podcasting gets it quite right like he does, with a mixture of meticulous research, wise artistic insights, and well-humored personal connections. I proudly support Vish and Creative Control on Patreon. You should, too. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Fucked Up is an uncommonly excellent, ambitious, and prolific punk band based in Toronto, Ontario. Over the past 20 years or so, Fucked Up have written and recorded a truly remarkable discography, won prestigious awards, toured the world, advocated for and elevated their community, and have purposely and charmingly challenged the expectations of fans and critics with every new release and venture. On January 27th, 2023, Merge Records releases One Day, the sixth proper Fucked Up full-length album, whose conceptual conceit is that each musician in the band only had 24 hours to complete their respective parts 
for guitar arrangements that band leader Mike Halichuk wrote and recorded in the same manner. Over three separate recent conversations, I spoke with bassist Sandy Miranda and drummer and vocalist Jonah Falco, composer, guitarist, lyricist, and vocalist Mike Halichuk, and lyricist and lead singer Damian Abraham about things like uh, wildlife and London, England and Toronto, Ontario, creative stipulations and learning in public, grieving lost loved ones and keeping their memories alive, cicadas and nautical notions, gentrification, loving punk gathering spots like Who's Emma in Toronto when we're kids, but later discovering that such places likely displaced others, agoraphobia and dehumanizing technologies the Turned Out a Punk podcast and The Tragically Hip, treating every fucked up album like it's the last one, upcoming fucked up releases, touring, other future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you, who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control, which is the primary source of revenue for this show and all the work that goes into it. Thanks for your support at patreon.com slash creative control with additional support from Blackbird Music, a wonderful record store with locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, and very friendly staff who will happily help you fulfill whatever it is you're looking to order. Say you want to order the new uh, fucked up album one day or one of their three million Zodiac releases or whatever the hell else they're up to. Well, you just go to blackbird.ca and you type in what you want and lo and behold, it should be there and you can order it for yourself. Uh, once again, that website, blackbird.ca. Plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 747 of Creative Control featuring the lovely and talented Sandy Miranda, Jonah Falco, Mike Halichuk and Damian Abraham from Fucked Up with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Sandy. How's it going? I'm good. How are you doing? Long time no see. Yes, long time no see. We can actually see each other using the marvels of uh, technology, and you look uh, like you're comfortable. You look, I, like your, I like what's going on behind you there. It's lovely. I've been fixing up my place during COVID. (laughs) That's great. Where in the world are you, Sandy? I'm in downtown Toronto, uh, near Little Italy. I could see the CN Tower from my window. Daily inspiration. (laughs) (laughs) Do they still light that sucker up, like in different colors and stuff sometimes? Yeah, they do, actually. Um, And there are, I think they do on programs. And so, you know, during Christmas, there's greens and, you know, reds and... During Halloween, there's oranges. It's very inspiring stuff. Oh, nice. That's great. I'm glad Toronto's putting some money into cheering everyone up. Finally. <laughs> yeah. After yeah, this. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's <laughs> lovely to see you and hear from you. Also on the line, uh, Jonah, are you there? Hey, I'm here. How are you, Vish? I'm well. Thanks for asking. Where in the world are you? I am in the, uh, the London borough of Hounslow, and I'm on uh, my boat where I live and uh, just floating away. The famous boat. Everyone, the famous boat. This is the, the stuff of, <laughs> of I, I think everybody, you'd think that this would be like a more focal point, but I'm very reserved, you know, the, the floating life. It's, it's one of solitude and interiority, not for broadcast. <laughs> but here we are talking about it. <laughs> now, the boat seems stable. I expect your, the thing we're using, I can see both of you. I expect there to be rocking 
you know, waves crashing against the boat. Is it generally fairly stable? Yeah, it's very stable. On the when you live on the inland waterways, the water is only about waist deep, and uh, they're completely manufactured waterways. They were cut into the landscape by engineers ah. and navvies uh, many years ago, hundred years ago, or hundred and fifty years ago. So the turbulence is pretty moderate. Even on a windy day, though, the boats rock around, and uh, if a really big boat goes past and they're going too quickly, all that water displacement sends yeah. you sort of creaking and the ropes creak and that kind of stuff. But no, nah, it's very calm. It's, 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 it was a clear, sunny day here in uh, in the London Borough of Hounslow. <laughs> now, so wait a minute. No ocean, The ocean doesn't feed into your waterway at all? Is that what you're getting the, at? The ocean does feed into the River Thames, which is about 500 meters to my right. Right. Uh, but we are on the Grand Union Canal, which is separated from the River Brent by the Brentford Gauging Lock. Yeah. And then... That is separated from the River Thames by the Thames Lock. And then the Thames itself, you must travel east like 90 miles or something to get out to the channel. So the ocean is pretty far away. Okay. All right. Now, Sandy in Toronto, uh, in terms of wildlife, I'm gathering you odd, the odd time you see a squirrel, pigeon, Probably yeah, a that, coyote. You sometimes now there's no more coyotes in Toronto. I I hear tell. Is that true? Uh, I actually uh, a coyote did walk past me uh, when I was in Baby Point uh, last year. But my area actually has a lot of skunks. Oh yeah, right. The skunks. Okay. Yeah, that's a drag. Yeah, which is usually it's usually no big deal unless I'm walking a dog and then you know I need to be careful. Yeah. They're pretty damn cute though. I was uh, yeah, uh, my window faces like we live like pretty close to downtown in Edmonton here. And there's a when it got really cold a couple of weeks ago and I had my blinds up here in my office, I see the street giant coyote just walking down the middle of the road because the rat there was something something happened with the rabbits. They got all sick and they died. Mm-hmm. And now the coyotes are hungry and they're attacking uh, people. So that's not good. Oh. Yeah, they're hungry. They're hungry coyotes. And I didn't expect that when I moved to Edmonton. No one. I was like <laughs> bears. I expect there to be a bear every once in a while, but not coyotes. Anyway, Jonah, the uh, wild, yeah. brief wildlife uh, check in there. You're in the water. We got it all. Do you got what do you got there? Okay. <laughs> the, the most bothersome critter that we encounter is called a coot, which is a sort of waterfowl, and they have webbed feet, and they're mostly flightless birds. They just swim around. I, I'm pretty sure they can fly, actually, but I, you don't see them flying. Huh. They make horrible high squished airy peeping sounds they nest on everything they're really aggressive oh. they are kind of um confrontational but you know generally they're small the moorhen is also a lovely waterfowl they're much more friendly and they just scamper around and and do their thing in the uh in the nearby bushes and and uh in the uh in the in the waterways the we have uh many different varieties of duck uh, wow, okay. Some which are very beautiful, some which are pretty run of the mill. There are herons. There are the worst of all. The worst of all, worst of all, worst of all is the Canadian goose, which is a complete menace. They are aggressive, form gangs. They attacked me many times last year. You got attacked by In a fact, Canadian goose? Do they know your? Do yeah, they sense I, that I, they think one of our like, own? You, they like I. <laughs> No, they're like, you defected. What's your problem? So they've, they've come for me. And at one point, I was, it was the middle of the night. I was taking out the trash. And this thing squared up to me and started barreling right at me. The next day, I was walking down the, the pontoon and I heard this flapping. And the next thing you know, this same goose is flying at me full speed from, you know, 50 meters away or something. 
and uh, you the so, same yeah, goose. Really How do you know the- it's the same goose? They all look exactly alike. Well, look, there was you get a sense of goose personality <laughs> when you're in, around these things. I see. So um, among all this other aggression, every night. Uh, well, it didn't happen so much this last year, but the year before, in around March, every night at four thirty in the morning, about fifty geese would just start honking at each other relentlessly. Wow! And it's you have no idea how loud that is. And I play drums in fucked up. <laughs> I know loud. I'm surrounded by some of the loudest instruments on the damn circuit. And these geese, I, I've, I, I, I feel like I've slept through a fucked up set better than I've slept through. Goose rave. So, oh my god. Okay, I didn't realize. Uh, that. And then we also ha- we also have foxes. Oh, we also have. Oh yeah. And and they make a really strange noise. And when when we've been moored on other parts of the canal, you encounter deer, and deer have a really horrible, horrible sound that they make if they're in distress. And one fell into the water right beside our boat. It really sounds exactly like a person screaming really? for their life. Oh wow! Yeah, it's, it felt it's really disturbing. Yeah, like a clumsy deer fall into the water like an inspector clouseau like situation made clouseau look like the flying Belendas. <laughs> wow I, okay that, i'm sorry i mean yeah. maybe you got to get off the boat i was just talking about how ah. calm the boat is and it sounds like a disaster well it's a real you know greyhound station of <laughs> shitty animals sometimes <laughs> heron's also horrible sound and then in the park just down the road there are bulls for some reason bulls and yeah, cat, oxen, bulls, cows—they all just cruise around. And there was a there was a moment over the summer here. There's a huge drought, and all the grass turned like brown and crunchy, and it, it looked really arid. It looked like the southwest, or it looked like you know, wow. it looked like something from a like a cowboy film. And there was, of course, oxen walking around. So that is bizarre. When I asked this question, I thought you were going to say like goldfish, you know, the odd minnow. I, I thought we carp is popular. <laughs> but by you've, the way. Got, you've got like a farm. It's like a farm, basically. Yeah. That is remarkable. Well, I'm glad I checked in. I didn't know that. I don't know what boat life is like. I was yeah. not expecting that. So uh, that's weird. Anyway, speaking of slightly weird things, let's talk about <laughs> fucked up. Uh, yes. no, no offense. Uh, this new record is brilliant. By the way, I want to say that right Thanks. off the top. Oh, it's amazing. I've been I've been texting Mike uh, for whatever that's worth. And I, every time I drive in the minivan, I have this new record, uh, One Day Blasting. And it's a fun, for what it's worth, a fun record for me to drive around with. I enjoy it. I, it's a, it's a, I, I, I don't know what that means, but I particularly like, I really like it. It's, it's really striking me in a, in a nice way. Uh, Sandy, let's begin with you. I know, Jonah, um, you and Mike uh, began sort of working together in a way on this before anyone else. But I want to go to Sandy first because... Uh, a, I want to know what the process was like for you, uh, you know, to, to work on a record in this way. And if you can talk about that a little bit, how it came to be. And within that, as you're speaking, if you can think of it, whether or not this process, which I believe is quite unique, uh, differs much from how, how, how fucked up has been working uh, in the last few years. Uh, I don't know if that is clear enough for you. But can you begin just by describing what your role in uh, this record uh, one day uh, has been? Well, um, I'm the bass player, supply the bass. Um, Joan is also, you know, part of the rhythm section, so we kind of liaised quite a bit with the songs. Yeah. And uh, for this one, I believe it was February 2020. Is that right, Jonah? That we did this. That's that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I did mine at the end of Jan- I did my tracks at the end of January 2020. So. February so 20. Was- that's the advent. The advent. 
It's it's like yeah. a calendar, a pandemic calendar. But that is basically when we started yeah. to hear things were going wrong. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. We, we start started snuck this one right under the yeah, wire. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Or at least the beginning of sorry it. to interrupt you, sorry, Sandy. Sandy. Yeah. That's okay. But yeah. So it was February 2020, and I remember uh, because I was playing the. Um, like Bernie Sanders debate, the presidential, like it was a, pri- a primaries debate that was running on my TV. And Mike and Jonah were saying that, you know, the concept for the new album is um, just to see what we can do in a day, right? 24 hours. So basically spent a lot of time at home, which it's funny because it was pre-COVID, um, but I guess I was practicing, you know, how to just sort of work <laughs> on something at home in my, in, in my space. Yeah. So basically, yeah, Mike and Jonah were, you know, farting around the studio, um, getting some ideas down and pretty much had like, you know, the f- f- the songs were formed basically. So I got the MP3s and just kind of tried to find, you know, my nook where I could in, in bass and kind of, you know, I mean, in my head, I was thinking, OK, this could be the last fucked up record, so I better give her. Right. <laughs> and uh, huh. so um, I, I, I really but also I, I had the time constraint. Right. So I couldn't go too crazy. And so I just sort of put I, I already had the beginnings of a little bit of a studio at my space here in Toronto. Um, and I just uh, purchased Ableton, which I had been kind of playing around with for a few years already. Yeah. And just jumped in you know, basically head first. And um, I knew I didn't have much time to play with because, it, you know, we had like the 24 hours limitation, like just get it done within 24 hours. So I definitely drank a lot of iced coffee, which good thing. I am really good at making iced coffee. And I was drinking about like... Uh, Con- confirmed. Yeah. I, I, I like, honestly, I was drinking about a liter a day. Wait a minute. Um, so did you actually, did you work 24 hours to get your parts done like in a row? I tried, but... It, Jonah, can I be like, should I reveal? It, it, like, it was 24 hours. I couldn't do it 24 straight, so it was 12 and 12, basically. Yeah, no, that's, like, that's fine. But all, but okay, so you, would you take a nap? Oh, I didn't really like <laughs> sleep very much. I just was, I'm a coffee addict. I don't know if you, you know this about me. No, um, I didn't. <laughs> but uh, no, I, it just, I, I just got into the zone. And in fact, I, I shot a little time lapse of the whole process. I don't oh. know if you saw it. I can show it to you if you want to use it. For where like a, Where is that? What's it on Instagram or something? I don't know. I just sent it to the guys several months ago. Oh, like, oh. oh yeah. By the way, I made this. I, oh. I believe it's part of the like the record package. I could send it to you. But oh, sure. Basically, I, I, I recorded the whole thing and it's just me going like this really fast. Like, cause it's on, <laughs> like I, it's a time lapse, right? Right, okay. And, you know... And you can see, like, you know, I'll play a bit, and then I'll eat pizza, watch some of the debate. I right? see. Okay. Now, you, you you are used to, I think, being in... fuck. There's a few things you said there that I want to follow up on real quick. One, uh, your point that this could be the last fucked up record. I feel like you've had that feeling a few over the last few records, if I may. I'm just yeah, guessing. And I'm I, usually wrong about it, too. Yeah, and I want to ask you about that for a moment. Like, why does that keep uh, lurking within you every time you do something? But also, uh, I was going to say, you're used to getting kind of weird, I think, used to getting weird messages about what Fucked Up are going to do. What did you make of the 24-hour, one-day concept as a musician? And did you be like, were you like, why? Why are we doing this? Or were you like, okay. That's fine. That's a concept. No, you know what? I'm up for I'm up for whatever, you know? I mean, we've been a band for it'll be 22 years coming this March and, you know, 
you, it, it keeps things interesting, I guess. But I, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was cool, you know. But we didn't really know that the COVID was gonna, yeah, was it was gonna happen. So that was kind of a bit interesting. Although there there were murmurings in in the news, but no, I, I was I was cool with it. I mean, you know. Years ago, we would record together in, in a studio or we, you know, we'd be in, in, in a practice space together and just throw things together. You know, Mike or Jonah would, you know, take the lead and I'll try as a bass player, just sort of find my groove. Yeah. But what I did like about it, like, I, I did like the end, the independent uh, work aspect because then I could take time if I wanted to without judgment of like trying different things mm-hmm. right because sometimes if you're if you're on this you know with people in person you feel on the spot and if you don't have something right away then you know it can kind of create some anxiety but I I, I think I thrive in independent study like yeah. this yeah and it is a contrast to how things used to be done but you know you can't do the same thing forever in the same way forever yeah, yeah. but you know part of me did kind of like want also some like immediate feedback with someone to have a sounding board to have someone there with you i really miss that yeah but i th- i think it turned out cool and um i think uh you know this is uh, something that that we'll continue to do i mean especially with jonah being in england yeah you know we, we don't we don't have the benefit of of being able to be together and you know like i said you know been a band for a long time processes change and and so right now we're in the uh the remote version of fucked up where everyone is separate um physically but together we're together virtually yeah and i think it's just it's just the future man yeah well before we go to jonah on uh his perspectives though can we follow up on this impulse you seem to be having of, of in the last i would say certainly since i started doing this show and you've been on it you've sort of intimated like this could be it even in the biographical information that accompanies this record damien says this i thought this could be the last time i recorded my vocals like i uh, recorded vocals yeah. for a fucked up record i mean I, I, that when you started this there wasn't a pandemic um i think the pandemic adds a layer of for some of us appreciating life more appreciating mm-hmm. what we're doing more but also starting to think is this the last time i'm going to go to this pizza place is this the last time yeah. I'm going to get to go do this trip to or go on tour? So that's kind of floating in the air. Is that mostly what informs your feeling of like a bit of dread or doom that this is it kind of? Yeah, I just I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's like the stoic in me, you know, that anything you have can be taken away from you at any moment or it can end at any moment. And to really yeah. appreciate it when you have it, like there's part of that, you know, we've been a band for so long and. You know, a, a band is really just about relationships and how well they work or how well they don't work or if they work even when they're not working, right? If they're working through the dysfunction. And I just, yeah, I, I've always felt this. It's, it is strange. You, you pointed that yeah. out because, like, there was a long time where I thought, well, every every year of being in the band, I thought it was going to be the last one. Um, and here we are, right? Yeah. We're, yeah. we're all getting up there and, you know, things are still going on. But uh, yeah, I, I I was wrong every time, but you know what? It 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 doesn't mean I'm all of a sudden gonna, uh, you know, take it for granted and think, oh yeah, you know what? I don't have to really think too hard on this recording because there's always going to be another one. Well, you never know. That's true. Um, yeah, and especially now with COVID, like we've lost so many people, right? That I I find that you know, so so uh, we played a couple shows on Halloween this year, and I I was there and. 
I saw Nick Flanagan there and he was talking about a friend of his who had passed. And I remember riding my bike home after soundcheck thinking, oh my God, I could die on my bike, like riding home yeah. from soundcheck. Like, it, it, you know, things could be, it can end at any moment. So, uh, well, I was looking at the thank yous, uh, on this record, like in the credits and it's, it's mostly all people who have passed away. I think there is. And when you hear Mike's certain songs like Cicada, uh, really talk about this, like appreciating the people that are gone, but also I, I was just talking about this with um, Don Pyle recently because he put out, um, I have it, a copy of it right here just to plug uh, Don's book, Shot in a Mirror. Uh, and Don and I were talking about the fact that so many of the people he's photographed have passed away um, mm. for various reasons. And then that gives the photographs that he's been living with in some cases for decades, more gravity. He looks Ugh. at, they, they become different. The same photo that's been hanging in his yeah. studio with two people who are living, once they go, it just changes everything. And when I looked at that list of people that was uh, in, in the credits for one day, I, I couldn't help but notice that they were, uh, Jonah, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe they're all people who have left this place i think i think some living people are thanked but there we yeah. do acknowledge a lot of the people that we've lost yeah. uh, and it it's it's striking when when you lose people um anyway and in the especially riley and wade who passed away that was sort of also in like the thick of lockdown and isolation yeah. and stuff like yeah. that so uh, this, these are strange times to deal with people passing away and, and Dallas and Steve Bennett passing, uh, and Ian Warang, like, uh, all of these things happened sort of like an avalanche, yeah. uh, either in the, in the thick of or coming out of whatever version of reality we were experiencing over the past three years. So, yeah, I mean, can, this I, is true. Just I, to, I can probably, I hope to talk to Mike at least about, um, how that loss has informed this record. Cause I do hear it as a record of, I mean, it's confronting a lot of horrible shit, but I also feel the gratitude in there and, um, the longing for people who aren't around. In any case, I want to get back to the, the process here a little bit. Sandy, thanks for explaining that. Jonah, yeah. uh, you get weird. I, 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 I hate, I hesitate to use the word weird. But I sense that Mike has these ideas and concepts, and um, I know you two work very closely together. From what I understand, he went into the studio and came up with guitar parts, and then were you the first to hear these, Jonah? I may have been the first to hear these. I was the first to hear about them anyway. Yeah. At some point in late 2020, Mike mentioned, uh, or sorry, late 2019, Mike mentioned that he had been going into the studio with uh, our longtime uh, audio engineer collaborator Alex Gamble and been making some music. And uh, usually when Fucked Up is writing material uh, in the last sort of four years anyway, what happens is the music itself gets written in the studio. He and I will go in, he'll come up with a guitar line, I'll try and help develop that line, add some drums to it or this, that, and the other. And, and that's kind of been a common practice for how songs got, have been written and fucked up for the past couple of years before COVID and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So when he told me he'd been going into the studio with Alex, I sort of thought nothing of it, although it was the first time that he'd just gone in on his own. So something was already a bit different. Mm -hmm. And uh, shortly thereafter, he explained to me that what he was doing was he had 
done three eight-hour sessions, totaling 24 hours, and he'd come up with a bunch of songs and arrange them. And the idea was that he was going to pass them along to each band member, kind of like a game of Broken Telephone or something, to sort or, or Mad Libs or whatever you want, yeah. to kind of complete their parts. And the stipulation was that we weren't allowed to hear it first. So there was this kind of gamified version that I was introduced to. And of course, like, Mike was really excited about the tracks. And uh, when, when I was in Toronto uh, and I would see him, he would say, oh, I, I kind of really want to play these songs, but I, but I, I feel like it should be a surprise. So the, the, the trick was that I was only allowed to listen to them on the day I started recording. Huh. Because theoretically, that, that was how he did it too. He went in the studio with zero material and just played the guitar and out it came and, and it got arranged. Um, so I was supposed to do it the same way, like going in with no material, no concept of no preparation, no preconceptions of what it was going to sound like. I had no idea what it was going to sound like. I did get a sneak preview on a car ride once and it was, uh, I, I had no idea what to make of it. It was just, you I just heard the guitar. B1 one was just the guitar. I just heard the yeah. guitars. The guitars feature a lot of octave pedal and interlocking parts. I, I nicknamed it chamber hardcore. <laughs> so it was kind of like totally new musical experience and uh i i i didn't receive a copy of the tracks or anything like that and uh i got a i got a dropbox link the day before i went up to the studio i, re I recorded my drum parts in uh in a place called armley just uh which is in leeds in in the uk and uh we me and the engineer opened the sessions together and it was just piles and piles and piles of guitar loops and you know if you look at a fucked up recording session it's just tracks upon tracks upon tracks upon tracks upon tracks upon tracks upon tracks. Upon tracks yeah. da, da, da. So out come these rainbow colored sessions, and uh, it was it was a new experience. Now I was used to writing in the studio. Yeah. I was used to writing extemporaneously and off the cuff, and trying to make decisions based on things that I'm hearing instantaneously. But this was like. You kind of, and Sandy, you, I mean, you, the nice thing about this is that even though it was an isolated experience for everybody, we, we all kind of experienced it in the same way for the first time when we were trying to commit something to permanence. Do you think that the stipulation that Mike, uh, uh whatever decreed, <laughs> do you think he was trying to simulate a jam oriented, uh, atmosphere? No, of like no, not at all. I, th no. I think this was about an idea. Every fucked up record has a central idea, a central theme. And sometimes that theme or idea is contained in the lyric writing. And yeah. other times the theme or the idea is contained in the music. And the, the music has gotten way more diverse over the years. And it's harder and harder to think this is what this record was about. You know, David Comes to Life, I think, was probably the last record that had a real definitive and, and Glass Boys too. Like the, those two records had a sound. They had an approach. Everything after that has been like just about doing whatever musical idea sort of comes out. So well, I think this was just about the idea. The idea was to make a record in 24 hours that couldn't be prepared for, that couldn't have any of our personal expectations projected on it because we didn't have time to do so. You know? Yeah. No, sorry. When the 24 hour thing I get, I understand that concept. Sandy, what I was getting at, I don't know if you are, uh, can appreciate where I'm coming from with it, but to suggest that you can't hear it or spend too much time with it before you come up with parts for it, suggests that Mike is like play impulsively play like we're in the room and I'm playing this for you. 
and you're going to kind of come up with your parts because that's sometimes what happens in a band. Uh, someone comes up with a guitar yeah. part or a lead idea and then they say, here's what I have. And then everyone tries to play along with it until you end up with like, yeah, this feels like it's, it's, this feels ready. This feels good. So Sandy, when I, that part of the stipulation, did you feel like Mike was like, play like what instinctually comes to you? You have this time constraint. Yes. But also I'm not going to let you hear, you're not going to be able to spend too much time with it. That's what I'm getting at where he's trying to simulate the notion of like, it's me in the room playing you my, what I think the arrangement is. What do you want to do with it? Do you, does that make sense to you, Sandy? Yeah. Yeah, in a way, I guess it is similar to being in the. Sorry, it's been so many years since we've actually written all together yeah. or have been together yeah. during formation. Yeah, I, I guess David comes to life would be the last time that that's how it was sort of done. But I have to say, like you know, February twenty twenty feels like so long yeah. ago that yeah. it's hard to actually go back and and think about my mindset then. Yeah, but in a way, like. You know, hearing it come, you know, out of your mouth, it it, it sort of is, I guess, similar to, you know, uh, working to like when we're yeah. together in this space. But I don't know. No, it's, no, it's, I don't. It's, I don't. I'm not sure that that was intentional. If if it is, then 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 it is. Yeah. But well, well, I, I don't well, think it was I, intentional. So 20, I think this was a 24 hour thing. I get, but what I'm getting at, Jonah, and I and I don't mean to cut you off, but like, why else would he say you can't spend time with it, like? More than you like, you know why? why no, the I, fact I, that he, I, the, he, you know, you know the, what I'm saying. The thing you're correct in saying the idea was to sort of foster some impulse, yes, here rather than calculation. But I also think that part of enabling that impulse was about was very much directly related to the time constraint in order to just get it done. Right. So fair enough. I think that fucked up had been working on stuff for a long time and nothing was getting over the line. And I think that. The 24 hour thing, how this is relative to impulse and doing things is like, okay, you can't listen to it. You can't practice and decide when you're ready. You just have to get it done in 24 hours. And I think this was kind of about efficiency more than it was about, you know, fostering a jam like relationship. And I also think that the whole remote aspect, even though it's pre COVID, of course, is, is in response to the fact that like we aren't, we didn't jam together as much anymore mm. or at all. And of course, I'm, have moved to country and X, Y, Z. So it's, it's harder for us to get together. So this was a way to finalize something in stages almost instantaneously. And I think that that was, you know, it's, it totally set a new precedent for how we work together and also is a very unique way to make a record. Absolutely. And for, per, for me personally, it was challenging because I do have a bit of a perfectionism in me mm -hmm. and, um, this, you know, didn't allow for that. I, I, I really had to try and, and, and stick to the time constraint because honestly, I, I, I could be working on something forever and it could never be good enough and it holds me back. Yeah. So I, you know, my, I think Mike and John are really good at just keep, keep moving forward, keep going. Don't worry if it's not, you know, it's not like perfect, you know, perfection, perfection doesn't exist uh, and just keep forward. Whereas like, it fucked up was just me. <laughs> I don't know what my O would be like because it just wouldn't be good enough. I'm just so yeah. hypercritical yeah. of everything I do that, you know, the, the guys help help kind of unlock that, like, like yeah. aspect. Well, not, not unlock, but, like, just help me push past that because I definitely do have an issue with um, with knowing when, when something is done. Yep, fair enough. You know, like, w w we've had some songs in the past, like, I can't remember which ones, but 
you know, a song will come out at, at a practice and be done in like 10 minutes and Michael be like, all right, that's done. Let's move on to the next. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> like that's done. But you know, it was done. And, and some, sometimes you need to just know when it's done and just move on. I mean, surely though, uh, Sandy, that a, a song for you as a player can evolve in a live setting, right? Like if you were like, Oh yeah. I, Over time. Yeah. Yeah. Like I didn't really like the way I play. All right. I'd play better now. Oh, than dude, I did are you kidding we, me? In yeah, like in yeah. five years, I'll be playing completely different lines on these songs, yeah. you know, because yeah. they get more comfortable. And sometimes yeah. you listen back to an old recording and just kind of cringe. Like I don't know, yeah. Joda, like when you listen to Hidden World, like yeah, you yeah. can hear all I, the I, imperfections. I think I've had this chat with every member of Fucked Up about how kind of cringy it is to listen to those old records and how we play too fast and the recordings are weird sounding and yeah. uh, the the playing is inept and and totally unrefined, but. That's that's just is what it is, right? And and I think the same, the Sandy. That's you put it really well, actually. Like, what you have to know when it's done. And uh, yeah. for those old recordings, we just that was the best we knew they were done. And you know, like there are some great successes of all those really old recordings that I listen to now, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't, I could never do that again because of whatever how I consider my own skill level what it's capable of or what I am doing, you know, and it's the same for every member who's progressed as a player. Right. And like, like for, for us choppy as some of those old recordings are, what's still captured is just the essence of them. Right. The essence comes through. You can see past, you know, some of the imperfections or, or rough areas, as long as you can kind of get the general essence, then you're good. And, and in a way, this album is about, it just captures the essence of the time or the, yeah. the you know, the essence of, of, of what the intent was. I relate my work, uh, in this realm to musicians as well. And that we're all learning in public, uh, which is mm-hmm. a bit of a weird thing to do. Like you hear, and we are all documenting all of it. It's not just like I had a bad show. Uh, and that was 15 years ago and it's gone. It's like, you guys make records and you document your progress as people and musicians. And I'm, you know, in this realm or whatever, I'm just constantly capturing flaws, the, the, the learning process, the learning process. And, and I think that's something we all have to, uh, get people used to be like, uh, Oh, I couldn't do what you do. I couldn't listen to my voice every all the time like isn't that annoying i'm like yes i'm annoying i get what you're saying (laughs) however i've learned to live with it like i know who i am now and i and by editing myself as you do jonah and and sandy when you're thinking about your parts you're like yeah don't do that or that's really good that you know how to do that now you know like Mm -hmm. that's just the thing i'm trying to uh get at there uh based on what you guys are talking it's it's interesting to get stuff wrong in 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 this context where you know like I say, we're hearing things for the first time, especially with drums. It's not always clear to me or, or my impression of where things go is not necessarily how the song was written. And actually, despite the sort of free flowing nature of all this, there was an intention with how the song was written. Every songwriter does that. You have, you yeah. say like, this is riff A, this is riff B. In my mind, I hear this. So if I was going to do something completely different, that could derail the song. And I don't think the point of this record yeah. was to derail the songwriting process uh, from the point of their origin. I think it was just to do things in a, in, in a different way that got them done quickly, but got them done with a really kind of um, heightened focus. Yeah. Fair enough. Sandy, I saw your hand up for a moment. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I think fucked up might be the epitome of practicing in public, because if you've seen our first show and second show, you wouldn't think that we continue. Like, <laughs> we were awful. Like, but... Like, like, like maybe like sound wise was pretty rough and, you know, not the greatest, but what carried us forward was just the energy. Like you don't have to be good from day one, as long as you just put your heart and soul into something. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's really uh, about the spirit, which, which kind of pushed us forward and, and then we got better with their instruments and better with working together and things just kept happening and things just kept happening and we just yeah. never stopped. Well, pra- practicing in public, uh, practicing in public is what bands do. Yes. You know, you can rehearse for this moment of uh, spontaneity as much as you want, but like uh, things don't develop until you really road test them. And that's why, you know, good bands are usually on the road all the time. Yeah. And they're, the energy and the relationship between how people play together, I mean, it's very hard to replicate that in the studio, but what you do replicate in the studio is this interplay between yeah. between people and how you play with each person's style of playing. Yeah. So this is this is the nature of being in a band. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. And uh, Versus a studio producer that's making beats for Nissan adverts, you know what I mean? Well, yes, and I think that one of the one of the reasons fucked up is so beloved is the spirit of the thing. I think people want yeah. to get behind. They agree. They appreciate what you're doing, and as a as an entity, and in terms of what it says about uh, community building and all those sorts of things. I've talked to Jonah about this kind of stuff before, and I know it gets a little highfalutin, uh, but I, I do think that that's one of the the things that your band resonates with people because people believe in what you believe in and that's part of it it's not just these great records and these great concepts and whatnot um we've covered a lot of ground here and i appreciate uh, this uh, insight into one day one last sort of process oriented question for you sandy because jonah uh, experiences mike's ideas as guitar parts what do you get in the end uh to work with uh in terms of putting your bass on stuff well I need Jonah's drums in there. Like, you, you know, I mean, because like, you know, recently actually, or maybe about a month or two ago, Mike sent some of his guitar and there's no drums. And I'm just like, I just need the drums. I, you know, I need to lock in with them. I need to kind of, uh, you know, I kind of take like with the drums and the guitar together that I, I just, I need the two. I need, I need the two anchors. I can't just run with the guitar because the drums will just change the the energy of the song, yep. you know, and, and I, w- I want to sort of match and enhance, you know, that energy. So in a way, Sandy was when you get when what Sandy's saying is, is totally true. Like when, because I, I mean, we've both now experienced just raw guitar tracks and you have to make sense of it in a totally, totally different way. And there's so much happening in these tracks, so much counterpoint and all this, that and the other. It's hard to find the note center because you don't really understand where. Yeah. It's hard to hear where the song is going when you don't have a context of what the rhythm's doing, you know, what what the the dynamics are supposed to be doing. So it is a it's an interesting blank slate. So in a way, Sandy, you got like more of the song in a sense at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The the song was definitely fully formed. Like I would say that if like to be the drummer in this in this type of scenario would be quite challenging because I feel like your options are way more like unlimited. Right. Like. Right. In terms of like your tempo or like what you know what you're hitting, like so you know I f- I feel that um, there's a there's a pretty awesome outtake from uh, one of these 
one day tunes. I can't remember exactly which one, but I was really struggling to understand what to do. And in, in conversations I was having with Mike at the time, he was, he was trying to give me some guidance because if I played it on completely the wrong beat, then that derails yeah. the song and the project. So he was just like, look, here's, this is, this is this. Anyway, but before I had that information, I was trying to experiment and I couldn't come up with something that I felt good enough about. I thought this is, this is too easy and it's not interesting for the song. And I, there's like a take of, I think it's, I can't remember which song it is now, but it's like a drum and bass style drum beat oh. over the whole <laughs> oh, song, like nineties drum and bass style, like super fast snares and, and cymbals. And like, yeah, this is one of those things where, you know, your options are, are to open it. And so, but what it led to in terms of developing the songs was a happy medium between I really put myself in my place yeah. to a certain extent. And I think we, I think this is a, a, something that maybe we can all relate to having played on this record is that like, as a group, when you're playing these parts, people's personalities naturally you sort of fight to have your voice heard yeah. and and like I, I i alluded to this loudness like that's just the group dynamic who can be louder than the other person who's getting out of the way because someone else is louder and in fucked up's past recordings there's a lot of and the, it makes these recordings very good but there's a lot of like competition of how to you know this is where all the, the musical development happens. Yeah. The bass line takes over here. The guitar lead is the focus. All of a sudden there's a drum roll. The vocals are really quick. The vocals are, you know, in this, I really feel as though I tried to find my place a lot mm. more and just be on drums and dr help drive the song rather than try and help myself be a loud voice. And Actually, I had the same problem. Yeah, there you I go. Do. I do. I, I remember um, the first takes of a lot of the songs, I, I think you, like, you may have said something like, Sandy, it sounds like a, 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 a bass solo. Uh, <laughs> a bass sound. Every song, it sounded like a bass solo. Because I'm thinking, oh my God, this is our last album. I better give it. And I'm just huh. like overcomplicating, huh. not even thinking about what it would be like to have to perform that like every night if, if I can even like maintain it. So, you know, Jonah kind of helped me just, you know, well, this chill, is to, to chill a little bit. This is the thing. As because we practiced while we existed and you know you what was what was the phrase we came up with before practice while you play or something or play while you practice learning as you play whatever it was yeah we practice in public practice in public i said you. learning this, in this my thing is learning and learning oh, in public but yeah sure sure okay yeah. but practicing yeah. in public and developing who you are as a musician in this this is punk music rock music whatever it's not a very coded space yeah. it's not like you sit down at the drums and you're like well i have two bars of snare to play and measure 136 and like, oh, on the bass, I'm supposed to play one note for 45. You know, this is not how this music is made. It's about spontaneity and it's kind of about competition. Yeah. And all of our person personalities develop that way. And so, and also when given the, like Sandy said, when given the freedom to just do what you want, you think, well, I better, I better showcase all these things I've learned instead of we, instead what happened though, which is good in the end, it showcased the kind of like, a, a positive musical hierarchy yeah. of how these instruments can work together in a new way. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. I, I will tell you that when I first... And it rocks. When I Well, yes, and it does. It, sure, it rocks if we want to get FM radio about it. It, do, it totally rocks. I agree with you on that <laughs> front. I will say when I first pressed play, I think I might be weird, kind of threw me for a oh, loop, yeah. and, and uh, I think I expressed this to Mike at the time. But I love it. It's like one of my favorite songs that you've ever done now. 
there are some anomalies. And I will also just really quickly suggest that Mike and Damien as lyricists have really stepped up. I'm very impressed with what they came up with. I look forward to asking Mike if the one day concept uh, extends into some of the lyrical motifs. If you have any insights about these things yourselves, feel free to talk about them. But there are some anomalies. I think I might be weird as an anomaly. I was playing one day uh, in the kitchen yesterday, and my wife was kind of... She had a whole baking center set up. She was baking uh, macarons or something like that, and it was really elaborate. But anyway, she stepped out of the room for a minute as Damien was howling, came back when Cicada was playing which was a song uh, that Mike uh, sings lead on. And she's like, are you listening to the Foo Fighters now? I'm like, no, 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 it's still <laughs> fucked up. She's like, this is fucked up? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's Mike. It's a Mike song. But uh, it's interesting. Like, it is stylistically uh, dynamic, and I really appreciate that. Sorry, Sandy, your hand's up. Well, I was going to say that um, one difference between when we come together in person versus virtually is like in person, we could say, you know, like, try and capture this vibe like this band or like this era. Like there's more conversation to like try and find what the vibe's supposed to be. But when, when, when it's virtual and you're alone in your room and you just get these sounds coming at you, you're, you're not getting these guides and then you have to find the guides for yourself. Right. And so that's an extra challenge, which I, I wonder if, if maybe that has led to, the different components uh, components of the sound being a little bit like not the perfect fit because we didn't really have well I'm just speaking for myself sure but yeah. I didn't really have like tons of feedback or or tons of like well very little next to none uh, feedback in real time I had to make a lot of assumptions or a lot of guesses about which which kind of vibe should I go for you know which which Ali, should I turn down on this song to get to the other side of, you know, the street or whatever, you know, like, because there's so many different ways, so many different routes you can take through the map of a song. And, and I was kind of doubting myself, like, should I be taking this alleyway and then right in that street? Or does, you know, should I go down that street and, you know, cross there? But, um, so that's definitely like one area where the two methods are, are different. And I, I think, you know, affected the, uh, the final song. And, and yeah. how all the different pieces mash, uh, mesh together. Yeah. The the nice thing about the anomalous nature of some of these songs is there's always kind of an anomaly on yeah. a, lot of the, a lot of the fucked up records. And I think we have gotten pretty comfortable with making these choices. And, the, and before one day, the last release that we – last two releases we had were kind of anomalous. Year of the Horse yep. and Oberon are, are totally – out of the regular purview of fucked up. I mean, Horace has elements of stuff that we've done before, but Oberon is, well, yeah. Like, and Dose Your Dreams as well, I would, yeah. I would argue. And, yeah. and uh, but on this record, you're right. Like, I think I Might Be Weird is a really standout anomalous track because it's so whimsical and lighthearted. But these are the way, like, I, I can I can only imagine what the decision-making or thought process or what the vibe was like in the studio when that song got put down. But it's just... You just chase it, right? And you no, and it's, it's great. A, it's a nice. Yeah. Th- it's a nice thing about fucked up is you, it. It kind of just gets handed handed off into the machinery and and comes out. You know, goes through many steps to, to become fully formed. But yeah, well, the the, ba- it, the backup it, vocals as well, Jonah. If I may, like it's it's lovely. Like the whole thing, oh, the whole record. You, you've done a really like wonderful in, job. Yeah, like in my sort of like. Uh, Alice Cooper, Pretties for You era attempt at uh, backing <laughs> yeah. vocals. and uh, Well, you keep doing this hum drone thing on every record now. 
Uh, oh yeah, I don't, mm, that's on, you. Uh, I think mostly, that's me. right? Yeah, yeah. Was, so that that is, that is me humming. Yeah, what is that about? Where? Why does this keep happening? Does it mean uh, something? So I Easter was. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I've, I'm I'm at a crossroads here because I should just say yes. Really, uh, I'm about to start my humming career. It's true, and uh, you heard it here verse, cre- first. I'm not wrong, uh, right? It, 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 that humming has hopped has has appeared on uh, records it's, of late. You know what? Not to downplay it, but there's in, when you do backing vocals that aren't worded, you've got basically the vowels at your yeah. disposal. I've never really heard any backups where people are going. So I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the Earth is still young, maybe uh, <laughs> not that young. That sounds like a weird cryptic. Like, yeah, okay, delete the Earth is young comment. Life's, <laughs> life's life's a long old song. You never know. You can get some backups, but you've basically got the vowels at your disposal. Yeah. And uh, in this case, I was singing backups, and I was I was uh, in I was I was in a studio here, and I was chatting with Mike and sort of sending him ideas. And uh, we exhausted the vowels. But we wanted a sonorous, reedy, nice hum. And hmm is a kind of good one. It's also, oh, it's I don't know lovely. if you've tried to hum for a long time with sustained volume. It's pretty tough. I haven't tried that uh, myself. I, I was going to say in a, a long sh- time. A, sh- but a shower I, is just a few steps away and it's a perfect okay. place to you sure. know, yeah. road I'll, test this stuff. I'll try humming in the shower, which sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> uh, no, no, that's uh, <laughs> no, that's lovely. Um, listen, I've kept you both longer than I said I would, and I apologize for that. Uh, but I do appreciate your insights. Uh, now, this is uh, going to be, like I said, the plan is for uh, another, at least one other member of the band to join me. And uh, I presume I may ask him uh, if we can go out on a song from one day. But I will also uh, start a small debate between you two. If we wanted to go to a transitional song, let's say, or if my guest falls through and I have to go to a song, I wonder if we can choose one uh, together right now. I'm going to ask one of you to pick. The other one has veto power. If you don't like the the, the selection... We have a small debate, and then it goes before a parliamentary committee before a decision is rendered. Sandy, if we can go actually, up, I go. think you'll find that each part of the conversation gets sent to another person without them knowing about it, and they have to respond to one word at a time. That's right. Uh, within twenty-four hours. That's right. Actually, you know what? I'm going to go to Jonah. Jonah, can you pick a song from one day for us to, if not go out on, at least hear a little bit of? I think it would be fitting to play the song one day. Okay. Why did you pick that? I like elements of a lot of these songs and I, I, I like the whole record. Yeah. Um, but if I picked, I have like a few like personal deep cut likes. Uh, I mean, there's only 10 songs on here. It's can't, can't get that deep, but th- th- <laughs> this is all stuff that I find personally gratifying because some, of something I played or hearing sure. my voice and thinking it sounds particularly good. But actually, I think that like maybe the best representation of what's on this record and what everybody's done towards bringing their a game performance wise one day is is uh i think that's the standout for me okay so sandy you can veto this or agree what do you make of jonah's selection and and what do you can we go with that yes i agree if like i agree with pretty much everything jonah ever says it's gonna be it's gonna yeah. be a dark ass day when i say something so insane <laughs> that you have to be like you know it's jonah we tried for so many years and we were on the same page but now it's just no more <laughs> it's nice to hear it's nice to hear a bonded uh, rhythm section 
Uh, always. I, like a- I mean, I, I, I've said oftentimes, Jonah's the best part of fucked up. <laughs> oh, so. that's very. Oh, kind well, of that's very, <laughs> very nice, and I'm sure my next guest might not appreciate that. But anyway, it's uh, <laughs> it's fine. Uh, Sandy, Jonah, it's always lovely to speak with you. Congratulations on another wonderful fucked up record, and uh, yeah, best Thank best you. luck with everything. I hope we talk again soon. Thanks, Thank you so much. Nice, nice to care, see Vish. you. Nice to hear from you. Bye. Bye. Hey Mike, how's it going? Hey Vish, it's pretty good. Good, I'm fine too, thanks for asking. Now, uh, I assume you're in Toronto? You're doing the interview, not me. Yeah, no, it's true, you don't have to ask any questions uh, out of courtesy or manners. Uh, how, <laughs> how are things in Toronto today? Worse now. Really, because of me? No, I'm just kidding. No, it's nice to see you again. Uh, I was thinking about uh, your new record, which is great. And uh, your colleague Damien has a song, at least one, explicitly about uh, Toronto called uh, Lords of Kensington. It's great. I I never thought about some of the things uh, that he'd brought up there in terms of uh, how underground culture can actually lead to gentrification. I found that really fascinating. For you... Uh, other than living there and probably being influenced by or inspired by people, is Toronto an overt muse for you on any of these songs? I hope not. I mean, I think the stuff that we're trying to say, or the stuff that I'm trying to say on the record is maybe it's applicable to like a type of person and our era rather than our city. Like I, the stuff that I'm trying to talk about is, is just about a period of life and probably or hopefully is something people experience regardless of where they live. Yeah. You know, like a generational thing. Uh, yeah. Like if you're talking about gentrification, like in the way we was trying, we were trying to talk about on the record, it's like, that's more of like a nation thing. Yeah. Rather. You know what I mean? Like I didn't want to just talk about my neighborhood or my city or whatever, because to me that makes it, that makes it too, too specific. Well, I, I agree with you. I mean, one of the reasons I often ask people uh, on the show where they're from, what's going on in their city, it's not just to uh, kill time or whatever. It's because usually you learn stuff. If someone tells you about what's going on in their city, you can be like, oh, yeah, that that shit's happening here, too. Or, huh, that sounds cool. I wish we were doing that. So I gather that. I think when you're an artist and you're talking about where you live and what's going on, uh, you're reaching out into the world and other people are going to be like, yeah, that's happening here too. So you're kind of speaking universally, even if you're talking about something specific. Isn't that isn't that probably a fair way of looking at it? Yeah, but I I guess I try to obfuscate stuff when I just when I write lyrics or or whatever. Like I don't I don't really want to talk about myself. Yeah. And I don't want to talk about my own specific experience. And all I think all the fucked up records have been an exercise in me and Damien having things to say, yeah. but trying to cover the true intentions up in like sort of like grander concepts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So that we don't actually have to talk about what we're going through ourselves. Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, so maybe it's a time and space thing or a context thing for me. You've written a song and it kicks off the record called found. And, uh, I, as a someone who was born and raised in Canada, can't help but when you sing about how... What's the line here? Let me just grab it so I don't screw it up. 
We built a highway big enough to stop time. White clouds drift by over a country found on a genocide. Now, to your earlier point, this could be almost any country. But for me, the context, and, and I know you as well, like to me, you're probably talking about Canada. You're saying maybe you are? Maybe you could be talking about any place. Yeah. I mean, that song specifically, I was thinking back to when I was 20 and I was living on Davin- this road called Davenport in Toronto, which is sort of in the north, the northern part of downtown is a, sort of a quiet, sleepy residential street. And I had a I had a balcony, not a balcony, I had a front porch that was like three stories above the road because all the houses on Davenport are built on a bluff. And I was thinking like, oh, you know, that was such a nice house and I liked living there and it got it got sold by the landlord. And so I had to move out. And it was sort of my first experience of being like forcibly moved from a place I wanted to stay. And so I was, you know, that could be a song in itself. And that's where the story could have ended. But Davenport, the street is also one of the oldest streets in North America it's been like a, it was a trading route for like 10,000 years because the bluff that it's on was used to be the shore of Lake Iroquois, which is a, was a giant lake that all the great lakes mm-hmm. distilled out of. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time I was reading this new translation of the Aeneid by Shadi Barsh and her intro was talking about how the book begins and ends with the same, the same verb and the start of means discovery and the end means like violence or whatever. I don't remember the exact translation. Hmm. And so I was thinking like, you know, this kind of displacement, whether it's something you experience in a place you live or it's something that like you have to experience through your ancestors or what happened to your people. It's like the greater story is the one that's, I thought, more interesting and more important to talk about, right? Like we all have to be moved around in our individual lives, but like, the thing I was trying to recognize is like I was only there in the first place because somebody else having to be displaced yeah. from that exact spot, probably like generations and generations ago. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the stuff I was trying to talk about on the record was, yeah, things that I've experienced trying to like look further into them and find your own complicity in, in the things that you have to experience in your own little life and your, your own little day. Right. Yeah. The complicity thing I, I recognize in a few of the songs between your lyrics and Damien's, one of the other sort of at least subtextual themes is recognizing something you've been told is different than the actual facts. I I think a lot of people of our generation in Canada have had to come to terms with this. Like the things we were taught in school, depending on who your teachers were, doesn't actually match what the lived experience of so many people were. So when I think of, I mentioned Lords of Kensington, I I mentioned Found, even Broken Little Boys by Damien. There's a few other examples. Does that sort of make sense to you where I'm coming from? Like this notion of we're going to try to address some, from a place probably of anger, actually, the things we were told or the things we thought were happening aren't actually based on the reality of what was happening. Do you, do you know where I'm coming from there? And do you think that's part of this record? Maybe. I think that's, I think that's just like punk, right? Or like questioning things. That's sort of yeah, questioning. That's like the founding tenet of like whatever, whatever alternative culture you find yourself in. Right. It's like, whether it's punk or like 
being an anti-vaxxer or whatever, yeah. like the, the whole spectrum of like people that have decided that the prevailing sentiments that they, they come across in their life are, are false and sort of dedicate themselves to, you know, believing something else or fighting for something else. And yeah, that's probably like everybody has a bit of that in them. And the more of it you have in you, the further you go into whatever culture you, you ended up in. And yeah, like I think Damien's the Kensington song. Me and Damien have a lot of memories of spending a lot of time in that neighborhood, right? Like in the late nineties, that's where who's Emma was. That's where, that's where you and I basically probably first met, right? But who's Emma? Yeah. Yeah. And that was sort of like us as late teenagers, sort of like where we first like learned to stake our claim on like a piece of land. You know, if you want to, if you want to talk about it like that, like I can remember making posters that were like these sarcastic bullshit posters that were like, you know, punks own these, this corner of the city. Like if you're a mod or whatever, like stay out in like a joking sort of ridiculous confrontational way, but it really was us being like, we have found something in this area, right? Like there was venues, other bands like us hung out. I remember Zoe used to do like punk film nights in Kensington. And when you're a kid, you know, that feels exciting and you feel like making a claim on a space is like a very important part of building an identity and a culture. But looking back at it 20 years ago, you see how things change and you can only extrapolate like how things must have changed in order for you to get there in the first place. Right. Like we thought Kensington was like this paradise and looking back on it now that it's being more gentrified, it's easy enough for us to be like, well, it sucks and things used to be a lot better, but there were probably like, you know, old Hungarian people and older Jewish people who had been moved out by people like us who were probably saying the same thing. Right. When we were, discovering how cool this place was because of the stamp we were trying to put on it. Yeah. I don't think of you as a nostalgic person, but you're, I think you're correct. Everyone has a good old days that you may not even realize. And you may not realize that you're infringing upon their current good days. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Now, one of the, uh, there's a few different aspects of of the the making of this record that I want to get to, but since we're on the lyrics, uh, part of the record. This is Damien's uh, first full-fledged uh, batch of lyrical contributions since what 2014? Is that correct? Uh, yeah, for an out al- for an album for an for an actual album. Can you talk a little bit about why you think it's been so long? And can you also talk about what kind of conversations you two had about uh, him contributing lyrics again? Well, after the Glass Boys, we all kind of took like a little bit of a break to figure what we're going to do. And he's, you know, he did his wrestling TV show and he was doing a lot of hosting stuff. And we only did one record really like one full length between now and then. Dose your dreams. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I just sort of caught on an idea with that. And he just, he was into just letting me follow it. And that record I like being collaborative and I like writing. I like both of us. My, my preference is both of us writing, but the last record dose your dreams kind of was like, that's like a singular project, right? All of that stuff. That's like so weird and expansive that it just has to come from one person's head. I feel like the music or the, uh, the lyrics. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't really like a convert, you know, he was just doing other stuff in his life. And then I think after, after years of that, you sort of like probably develop 
a certain like consternation around writing again. And I think he just had to swing back into it. Hmm. Yeah. And we sort of sat down and, and came up with some, some general, general vibes for this record. But like, even though there's like a contrived concept, I don't think either of us really wanted to be like this massive, another big, big fucked up concept album. Cause we'd just done like, you know, 10 in a row or whatever. <laughs> well, you, you like concepts. You like there to be a singular vision behind whatever record you're putting out. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not misspeaking. That's fair, right? I like the shield of it, right? I like, I like for this, there to be this like artistic scaffolding for people to talk about instead of talking about like what my feelings are about things. Right. Well, that's the obfuscation part too, I think. Maybe yeah. a little bit, right? Like we, you get people talking about, I don't want to say gimmick. That sounds, that is disparaging, but you, you, you come up with a, a narrative around a record. And that, like people like me will ask you about the narrative as opposed to the actual maybe substance sometimes. And then I think, Mike, you get frustrated that no one's asking you about the substance. They're only asking you about the concept. Am I capturing some of your feelings on how the press cycle can go? Yeah, I think that I kind of just gave like I didn't want to be like a musician or an artist or whatever. Uh-huh. Like I don't even you know me a little bit personally. I like I don't really like sharing stuff and I don't go out of my way tell people about how I'm feeling about things. Right. But I found myself as someone who like has to do that professionally and like write lyrics and tell people how I feel about the world every couple of years. And so I think a lot of my contributions to the band have been, yeah, to put like a force field around that, whether it's like doing a rock opera about another character or like the Zodiac stuff. I like being able to say that I'm doing something because it needs to fulfill this obligation, right? Like, uh-huh. Oh, we have to make another record because we're going to do these one day things or like we have to do the, la- the last couple of Zodiac things. Right. Like, I don't want to just like wake up and be like, let me tell my- the world about this idea I had. Yeah. I need to put like a, yeah, like another layer in front of it. And I think I sort of recognized early on that like people who talk about our music, they sort of, yeah, you gravitate towards that. And I find that, uh, <laughs> and yeah, this is probably my own doing, but like, the music doesn't really get discussed as much as you'd, you'd assume, right? It's like yeah. every time we put a record out, it's always talking about the contrivances, like how long the record, like every fucked up review has um, the amount of minutes the record is, like every single one, which is strange, right? Like you don't talk about a painting and, and talk about how many inches the canvas is, but literally every single fucked up review is like, can you believe that this record is X amount of minutes and seconds? Yeah, that's and yeah, fair enough. I, I mean, I think I was talking to uh, Sandy and Jonah about this uh, in terms of why I think the band is is beloved. And I think we landed on the fact that for some of us, beyond the music, it's the spirit of the thing. It's the spirit of ambition and scale and camaraderie and community and all that kind of stuff. So... Because that's, and then that can be at the fore because you, by your own admission, like you call them, you say that it's contrived, I suppose, but it's an interesting thing for a punk to do to like, okay, everyone, I've come up with some parameters for a project. Now let's see how far we can push against those parameters that I've imposed, that we've imposed upon ourselves. That seems to be a constant. And then, yes, the minutes, I don't know about that part of it, but... 
I think people, when they're writing or cover, like writing about the band or covering the band, they can't help but be in awe of the scale of each record, of, of the, the mission statement for each record can't help but make it into our appreciation for what you've done. But you're right. That can take up the first 200 words of a review <laughs> when you're just like, that's just part of it. It's not the only thing yeah. that's part of it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a lot of it has to do with like, it's hard for people to take punk music seriously. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, I sort of had this idea that like all of the innovation in like in alternative music comes from punk. Right. Mm-hmm. Punk is like a very serious form of music and it like really changed the musical landscape in Western culture. Yep. But you know, it's still always treated as like a novelty when a punk band gets popular or if a punk band releases a record that like has chops or whatever, or has like interesting ideas because for whatever reason, punk music just isn't taken as seriously as like indie rock or, or whatever. Right. There isn't like punk music doesn't have the stuff around it. Like the like big professional, like review culture or the big magazines, it's just sort of seen as like, and I found this in in our own career, right? Like we've been pretty well reviewed and we've done a lot of interesting things, but it's like, it's always treated as like this novelty when we come up with a cool idea or a good record. It's never really dealt with head on that like the music is good or the band is good. Well, It's always like, can you believe yeah. that they've done this crazy thing? And it's like, we're just trying to make records like everyone else. But I, I think this is true of, uh, and forgive me if this is embarrassing for you to hear, but I, I think this is true of most revolutionary thinkers, if you will. And I would just, I would suggest a lot of punk is uh, seated in revolution of like things don't have to be the way they've conventionally been. I find that anyone who proposes any kind of revolutionary thought or or thoughts that to me they're always rooted in common sense and logic, but people ascribe revolution to them or impracticality to them, and then the people who are behind them, the proponents, are viewed as self righteous or some bullshit. Like it's a way of kind of I don't know if people feel guilty that they can't be a vegetarian or be worried about the climate or worried about their communities. Oh, that's just some bleeding heart, impractical, utopian mindset. Of course, we can't do that. That person's a nut. Like, you know where I'm coming from? Like, I in, in my history of the people I most admire have been ridiculed. And when I think, and I don't know if that says something about me. But often there are people who are like, yeah, we got to change something. And there's just like a a concerted effort to be like, we can't change anything. And I, I mean, we're going through that right now with the pandemic and the climate change stuff. And I think punk is sort of part of that, if that makes sense. Does that make sense to you? Well, I don't think that Fucked Up is like a revolutionary band. And I think, I think that we're sort of like, we have weird, we have these weird novelty ideas, but like we're sort of conventional in our in the presentation of our music right like i think that we're like not to look back on fucked up's uber or whatever i would say that we're like we're weird people trying to make normal music instead of the other way around right and i think that like the other way around is more revolutionary right like like normal people trying to make weird music like that right that sort of jumps out more than i feel like what what we've been trying to do like we started out as like an aesthetic exercise of like me and Damien were really into Danger House records mm-hmm. and the way those records sounded and the way they looked. 
And that's why FuckDub exists pretty much is like that and a couple other things. We really started out as like an aesthetic exercise of being like, can we mimic this way of putting out art? And that's like the least revolutionary thing you can, you can do. Sure. And I think that like, we've been doing, a, we've been doing versions of that for our whole, whole career. Right. Like the last record was like me trying to cover a book like Ulysses by James Joyce, which is like a very modernist approach to making art rather than like, like I don't set out to make stuff that sounds like things that no one ever has heard before. Right. I'm just sort of a weird person trying to make music that I think sounds normal. No, that's, but that's fair. And when I think of fucked up, I don't just think of it as a band anymore. I mean, given our history together uh, and the work we've sort of done together, like I think about long winter, I think about other things that you've helped spearhead. And, and that's what I mean. It's, it's a galvanization of weirdos, uh, but in a normal way, I suppose. Like I, I, I think I know where you're coming from. But that's what I'm talking about. Like, it's not just the band. It's the way the band operates. It's the way the band often brings in new people into the, whether they tour with you or whether you um, just try to play shows with them or organizations. Like, all of that to me is beyond just being a band. So, and, and I don't know if you were too close to it, but one day as you look back on it, there's going to be. Pun? Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess it was a bit of an album nod. One day, when you look back on it, though, I think you will see that the actions of this band, there will be that degrees of separation exercise that could be done of all the people you've interacted with or impacted in some way, whether that's in the audience, uh, whether that's people who are who end up in bands, whether it's the bands you've worked with. So again, I'm not trying to uh, embarrass you or foist too much uh, upon you in this regard. But I think that's part of the band. And so when you make records like these, and we'll get to the kind of concept of this one in a moment, I think that's what people are reacting to. Like, I guess I don't see it as derision. I, I, I think when Fucked Up release a record and there's a, and you, the concept of it is explained to you, for me, I smile a little. Oh, fuck. They did it again. They're at it again. And it's not a novelty for yeah. me. It's, it's just like, oh, great. This is exciting. Like I, I smile. I get the press release. I, I hear the songs, and or whatever comes with it. And I'm, I'm like, this is great. This is the spirit of what I of, of music that I enjoy and creative endeavors that I enjoy. Pushing the envelope, all the cliches. But you do that. So I'm on a ramble. I just want to say I hear that, and I I can appreciate your reticence to be thought of as revolutionaries. But as we look back at some point. I think that's going to be clear. All right. Do you, do, can you agree with that? <laughs> uh, sure. Some parts of it. I mean, I think that the, I think that the band had, there's two things going on, right? Like the band, I think we always try to have a certain generosity in yeah. fucked up, yeah. right? Whether it's like putting out way too much music, you know, all the records have too many minutes and yeah, <laughs> I think that that's just the inevitability of and coming back to like place and community and locality and stuff. Right. Like we didn't form as a band. We, we just formed as like people who had met each other because of punk and this very specific community. And I'll say it again, like in Kensington market, right? Like we all started hanging out at who's Emma and places like that. When we were 17, 16 and 17, we sort of learned how to be people through interacting with that 
really weird niche community, right? Yeah. Like we were meeting weirdos mm-hmm. when we were teenagers and that imprinted on all of us, right? Like how to, how do you live your life and how to treat people and yeah, like how to, how to do your art and how to do your band. And so we didn't form as this desire to like make it as musicians and none of us really were, you know, when we formed fucked up three of the five members didn't really know how to play their instruments. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, we were on, we were on another trip and I, I feel like that if there's any sentiment that I'd like to come through with the band is, is that right? Like I like making music, but we're more an exercise in spreading a certain kind of community feeling. Yeah. Into whatever we're doing, which that yeah. I feel like is what people responded to, right? Like you get it when we were, when we were really big, it was because people like you, you're getting a glimpse into something that is interesting. Right. Yeah. And there's this weird music that's coming with it. And I think like, if you look at stuff like turnstile, right. They're popular. I mean, their records are good, but also they're giving, they're giving a wider audience a glimpse into this like magical world that yeah. you need to be invited into kind of. Mm-hmm. And that's because they come out of a community rather than coming out of like, wanting to be musicians. Yeah, that's fair. I want to go back to, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Although, I mean, I'm starting, when I think of a, a song like Nothing's Immortal, which I can't recall, is that one of yours or Damien's? Damien. Yeah. So this is an interesting sort of recognition of being a part of something, but wondering if you're outside of it now. I can't help wondering if this isn't my thing anymore. And the the subtext of this is, it begins with, I keep hearing the same old punk song echoing around my head. There's something kind of eerie about it. I hope they'll play it when I'm dead. There's, there is this sort of recognition that, I don't know, I, I couldn't help but wonder, is this, is this is the narrator of this song talking about aging out of something they're a part of? I don't know. Yeah, it's a question for Damien. Do you feel that a little bit? Well, I think this this is this kind of thing Last Boys was about, like knowing knowing that you're just one person in a, in a lineage, right? Like, yeah, that's sort of what our version of community is as well. Like understanding that you're doing things in order for the people who listen to you to learn how to do them in a similar way. Right. And that's the benefit of coming from punk or coming from like an artistic community. Is that like you have to learn it from someone yeah, in order to teach it to someone. Well, but what I'm, yeah, and I appreciate that, but I want to, like, in the biographical info that comes with this record, um, Damien says something like, it almost felt like it might be the last time I'd ever get to record vocals for anything. And mm-hmm. in talking with Sandy uh, and, and Jonah, Sandy sort of said, and I think she treats every fucked up record this way, to be honest, or has for the last 10 years. She sort of said, like, this could be the last time we make a record. There's always this sense of, like, or rather, I'm, what I'm getting at is at least two members are conveying, like, this could be it. And we've been hearing about Damien. There was a point, I don't know which album cycle it was, where he may not even sing with us anymore. Like, there's just always this sense of pensive, is this going to end kind of stuff. Do you feel that yeah. as well? Or do you think they're just, is that just something within the band that you don't understand? I mean, Damien likes, that's Damien's thing. He likes to say every time we make a record, right? He has a very like Ben the Sikla, if I'm pronouncing that right, sort of take to it, right? Like 
he likes the grandness of wrapping things up, you know, mm-hmm. like he's really into that band integrity and their whole thing. It's like glamorizing the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And I think his, he sees a real appeal in that. Right. And so he says, this might be my last record. We might break up. He says, I like every, any, yeah, that, any, every interview he's ever done. Yeah. Just part of like his, his aesthetic. I always have about 900 fucked up records that are in process. Yeah. So I know that I'm going to be busy with this band for like the next 20 years at least. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's just, I don't know if it's a self-defense thing where they're like, they love it so much that, or anyone in the band, they love it so much that they're willing to let it go. Like, or, or convey that if they, if they have to let it go, they don't love it as much as they actually do. I don't know how to uh, how to put this exactly, but it seems a little like undercutting expectation, even to say, "Well, well I think, yeah, I mean, it's a it's it's a bluff, right? Yeah, but I think this this time around specifically, I think a lot of people thought that about everything, right? We just come out of a global pandemic. We're out. Of, are, are we out of it? Shit. I didn't know we were out of it. I thought it was still happening. Well, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, people are going to say shit like that about everything. You know, this might be the last time I go to the grocery store. Yes, exactly. Or this. Yeah, that's actually literally what Sandy said at one point. She was leaving a sound check on her bike and was like, "Yeah, that's sort of what the record is trying to address, right? Like, yeah. sure, this might be the last time you write lyrics. This, but also, like, this might be the last time you do anything, right? Like, yeah." It's a bullshit sentiment to just be like, live every day like it's your last one, which is not really what I'm trying to say. But like, you know, you can contain your whole life into one day and imagine that it's it's the last time or the first time that you do anything that you have to do. Yeah. It just like, yeah, it just depends on how you want to think about stuff. I want to get to this one day thing, as I keep saying, I will in a moment. But you said a couple of things that I want to go back to, one of which was... uh about your own sort of um, role as a public figure, how you obfuscate things a little bit and uh, try not to make yourself the center of whatever's going on. However, I will tell you, one of the loveliest songs on this record is Cicada, and that's sung by you. I noticed you singing lead on Dose Your Dreams as well. So there's so the last two records, is what I'm getting at is, on the, over at least the last two proper albums... You are stepping out a bit. You are coming up to the microphone and singing more. So some sort of evolution has occurred there. Like you you are, I, I believe what you're saying when you say you're trying to create a little filter between you and your your, your personal self and your public self, but you're singing more uh, and, and singing more directly. Can you talk a little bit about what's prompted that? Well, I, yeah, I used to sing in a band when I was like 16 and I didn't, I didn't like it. Uh, it was very nerve wracking to sing on stage. And I think we only played a couple shows and the last one, the last round of touring, we did the song that I sing a few times live and I hated doing it. So we, we took out of the set list, but we got some good feedback for that song. And on the last record I sang, I don't know, just sort of to try it. And I, I was really experimenting with different voices on Dose Your Dreams and it's, it felt kind of like a gimme to just, you know, sing one myself and it sounded pretty good. And so I wanted to do it again, but I just, I don't like the act of singing. Right. And I certainly don't want to do it on stage. And I've, I don't think I've, aside from that, I don't think I've ever like said a word into a microphone on a fucked up stage. Mm -hmm. It just, 
it's just not my thing. But in the same way, I like putting guitar stuff together. I like putting vocal tracks together. I like assembling that song. And uh, I like trying to con- convey stuff in that way. So I'll definitely do it again on record. I can't say for sure if people will ever hear me sing on stage, but I like doing it. Okay, I can appreciate that. Uh, but it, uh, again, it's just a it's it's a standout song. It's not just because it's uh, also. I mean, you and Jonah do these amazing backup vocals throughout the record. It sounds really great. So Jonah does backups. Oh, you don't do any of them. Um, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, so. it, th- th- those sound great too. Is all I'm getting at. It's a real. Um, it's a. It's obviously a nice kind of contrast between Damien's voice and. Uh, which is more guttural and, and, and your voice on Cicada and, and Jonah's voice, which are cleaner. Anyway, it's just great. I love that song as well. I, I look forward to it. it. It's one of those things that comes towards the re- end of the record, but by the end of the record, towards the end of the record, the record just changes all of a sudden, changes character. So I really appreciate that. And I want to, as, as we talk about one day more, maybe we'll get into the lyrical content of that song uh, because I couldn't help notice in the credits that, a lot of the people you pay tribute to in, in the traditional thank you section of a record are people who have passed away. Uh, I don't think that's exclusively that, but this is a record reflected. And Cicada, I think, is a, a song that reflects upon such people as well. Um, Loss was on your mind on that song and potentially on this record as a whole. Is that fair to say? Yeah, moving on with Loss. Yeah, I think like, the record was sort of conceived before COVID, yeah. but most of the work was done uh, during. And I don't think we wanted to like make a COVID record or like make a pandemic commentary really with this record. In fact, like I wanted to shy away from, from overly talking about it, but yeah, I mean, everybody lost stuff yeah. in the last couple, like it's crazy. It's crazy that we can just sort of even move on like this and have a semblance of normal. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, no, absolutely. I deal with this every day. Thinking back. Yeah. yeah like, you know, you, you put something like the lap, whatever the Spanish were, you know, I'm going to sound like a fucking moron, but like <laughs> thinking back without knowing it, any of the specifics, you can just imagine there being like a 10 or 15 year period of like readjustment for the whole planet after something like that. Yeah. And here we are going through it still just like, having to worry about your jobs and money and stuff when we, everyone has gone through this global catastrophe that like (laughs) is still happening. And just like, not only the physical damage it did, but just like all this like psychic violence that's, that's happening. It's crazy that anyone is still sane. Yeah. It's, Uh, (laughs) I agree. And uh, I think one of the reasons I've been drawn to art and art making is both because I find it fulfilling uh, to consume or or make it, but I also think it's probably a distraction. I I, I have this view of comedy where I think comedy is really staving off despair. Comedy has really been under attack because of how dark it can be uh, over the last few years. You love to laugh. Well, I just think... If you're feeling despair, <laughs> I, laugh, I, I do think we engage with things like to kill time a little bit and also to stave off yeah. despair. And I, I assume, you know, I was talking to... I, I talk to people, like one of the things that comes up nowadays is uh, people say, I can't sleep. I, I'm so distraught. And uh, one of the things they say is uh, to exercise. 
And uh, one uh, of the things we do, and, and that's, I think, basically to exhaust yourself. So your body can't keep you awake. Your mind can't keep you awake. You just you do some stuff during the day. And I think music, like just consuming art is a way of getting through the day. As much as I love it and it it it, it helps me on so many levels, I, it has come to mind in recent years that I really need this shit to take my mind off of how fucked up everything is. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I guess so. I get. I mean, it depends what kind of art you're looking at, I suppose. Well, I mean, there's and, probably part of you, if you think about it existentially, like, do you ever think about, like, why the hell am I doing this? Why do I have 900 fucked up records on the go? I mean, on some level, you're being a productive person, but do you ever think about, like, what am I... I Sorry, this is what I go through sometimes. Like, what am I doing? Why do I do all this stuff? Do you ever have that? No. I mean, I, <laughs> about certain things, right? Like, yeah, I think about that stuff a lot in my personal life. Yeah, but with the the band is the one thing I'm very I'm very direct with, and I you know I make music because that's what I like to do, right? And I'm lucky to be able to do that for my my primary thing. But I don't ever question really that. I don't have a lot of existential stuff around it around. Okay, and because I'm not trying to deal with you know my my music isn't isn't necessarily about stuff stuff like that, right? I try to always have fucked up songs be like very uplifting and positive and have like. Mm a very propulsive view of life. Yeah. But yeah, I make music cause that's what I like to do. Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, let's get to this concept then because we've, I've been skirting around it for some time. One day as a concept, uh, I, I've been talking to Sandy and Jonah. I believe the word stipulations was raised because, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> uh, both of them were like, yeah, Mike, I got Jonah in particular is like, I got an email saying, uh, I, that you, you know what? I'm not going to explain it. You explain it, Mike. How did the concept for one day come to you? Uh, how did it begin to uh, sort of blossom with your bandmates? And within that, can you talk about some of the stipulations? I'm particularly interested in uh, the one where you asked Jonah not to s- listen to anything before he got to the studio. Uh, yeah. That's one that I, I found interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the overall concept and how you came up with these sort of, um, I don't want to call them rules. Let's go with stipulations. You can say rules. <laughs> Nothing wrong with a couple of rules. I guess they're rules. Yeah. Can you talk about I mean, things? we had a lot of rules when we started out the band. The rules were we weren't allowed to say anything on stage. We weren't allowed to stop between songs. And there might have been another one, but I can't remember. I'm huh. really, I'm very into rules. Why is that? Artistic rules, because that sort of goes along with like the OCD-ness of fucked up, right? Yeah, okay. So we were talking about before, like everything needing to be in a little pen in order to push against. But this record was more just about trying to come up with a little like exercise to to freshen things up, right? Like it was conceived just as like a, a little musical drill. Like, do you think that we could do this? Do you think we could, I could make up this many songs in this short amount of time? And we had just spent, I just spent the pandemic, like doing all the year of the horse stuff and like teasing it out months and months. It was like a a year and a half release window. And that record took like six years to make. Like I had gone through so many personal changes in my life between when we started horse and when it came out, it was just insane. Right. Yeah. And I was like, enough of this because when you have that much time in the studio, whatever you're working on just morphs 
it just morphs out of your control and it becomes something else on its own terms, right? You have too much time to play with EQs or fiddle the knobs or whatever. It just, the work distance itself from its inspiration. And so I wanted to come up with a way where those two things were the same, right? The work and the inspiration were the same thing. Mm -hmm. And the only way to do that is just like, to just do it and not look back on it. And so, you know, I make music. So the obvious, the obvious pen for that kind of idea is a full length is an album, right? Cause that's what we make. And so it's just like the thing that I do as a person to think my chosen profession is making albums. Could I do what I do f- completely in, in the span of one day? Right. And you know, it's just one of those other things that we were talking about before where like, as like a 40 year old man, that feels fantastical to, you know, it's like this whimsical thing of like, Ooh, could I do this thing in one day? But it's like, as a teenager, we would have approached making a record as like, okay, we have 200 bucks. We can afford 12 hours in a studio and you would just make your record. And yeah, one <laughs> there day. wouldn't be any of the hoopla. There wouldn't be any of the hoopla, yeah. the contrivances, you know? Yeah. But when you have the, all this the 20 years of like artistic baggage, this is the kind of thing that helps, I feel like helps to strip that away. And the thing I was thinking of a lot when I was actually recording was like, this is just going to show me exactly what kind of music I make, right? When it's just me, like my hand and my guitar and the microphone, and there's no, there's not going to be two years of changing it or manipulating it. It's just going to be the, directly what comes out of me. I just really wanted to figure out what kind of player I was. And so that's what I did. Yeah, it sounds like you were trying to draw upon your own instinctual impulses as opposed to overthinking and um, yeah, giving yourself the benefit of, yeah, just lots of time. So that's you um, and your, your motivation. Jonah in particular said that you told him when you sent him these these parts that you came up with on guitar that he, he couldn't, he had to go to the studio and hear them for the first time. Is that part of that impulsive instinctual thing you're hoping? Yeah. 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 Because I didn't want anyone to have the opportunity. Well, it's like me and Damien, we took some liberties for writing, writing lyrics because that's, that's a different track. Yeah. But I didn't want anyone to be able to ruminate on, on what they were going to do. Right. I just wanted them to do it. So yeah. yeah, he sequestered himself in like Leeds or Wales or something for a couple of days with the, an engineer and he just did it. Yeah. And Sandy and said, Sandy. Sandy did something similar. That's right. Now yeah. you, you mentioned you and Damien in terms of the lyrics. So were there any parameters on the lyric writing in terms of this one day uh, concept? No, I didn't want to have any guest vocalists. That was one thing I was adamant on. I wanted like I wanted all the sounds on the record just to come from the the five of us, uh, the four of us. It's Josh to play guitar on this one. Yeah, but, well, what, I assume that was for uh, just personal reasons. But um, is that weird for you to have no Josh? He didn't play on "Dozer Dreams" or "Horse." Yeah. So what's going on there exactly? You have to ask him. He's busy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He doesn't, I don't think he, he gets a lot out of like playing guitar on, on albums. You know what I mean? He likes the shows. He likes the shows. He likes the gang of it. He likes going to tour. You know, not everybody likes, has to like every, every facet of being in a band. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. But yeah, me and Damien, again, like I didn't want it to be, 
I didn't need there to be an extra layer of like all the lyrics are going to be about this because then it just becomes like too rigid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But did you collaborate again? Like you, you, we established earlier. Like Damien has written more lyrics on this record than he has uh, since Glass Boys. Did you work together on them in any way? Him helping you, you helping him? No, I mean, we we talked back and forth. We talked about it, but I couldn't imagine writing lyrics with another person. That seems very weird to me. Oh, you never, you never like trade off or collaborate with uh, him or anything? Not for, not for years. Oh. I, no, I don't know how I would even do that. Well, is it, is it a, okay, here's, here's an idea. <laughs> One of you comes up with your, what you think is the done, uh, it's finished. Uh, yeah. You use email or text or some sort of uh, delivery service. And you say, hey, what do you think? That doesn't come to mind. Like, what if he said something that was totally out of left field uh, on one of these songs? Like, would you not be like, I don't know about this? We're both too touchy, I think, to be able to do that. I think we understand that, like, that would be chaotic. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's like antimatter coming into contact with matter. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, what about compliments? What about, hey, man, you really. So I sent Damien a note. Uh, to tell him how much I appreciated uh, the lyrics to both Lords of Kensington and Broken Little Boys because I found them rather, I, I was I just really appreciated them. They got me thinking about a lot of different things. And if he were, what did he say? No, he doesn't. Damien does not respond to my texts or emails. Oh yeah. But I I told him like I just thought it was great. So it was one sided uh, one sided conversation thus far. Yeah. I only emailed him a couple of days ago, so maybe he'll respond. It's the holidays or it's the end of the holidays, but. I mean, we kudosed each other for sure, but there wasn't any like meddling in why don't you change this word or talk about something else. I appreciate how you want to or would want to potentially um, keep some mystery to your own lyrics in terms of this context. Like, I don't want to ask you too much. We, um, you can give me compliments about them like you did, Damien. I, uh, I, I, I <laughs> thought... Uh, I yes, in particular, found and cicada really uh, speak to me. Cicada is hitting me in a particular place because uh, I've lost some friends, and and some of the friends I've lost. I mean, we're losing some of our heroes every day, and some of them are people who uh, documented their lives via records or films or books. So, cicada in particular, um, I know you didn't want to make a pandemic record. And the context is the context. Cicada could have probably have been written in any year, but it feels particularly poignant to me. I've given you some kudos on it already, but uh, it's just really struck me in a profound way, that that song, if, for what that's worth. The notion that pe- that people are still here even after they're gone uh, in the wrong hands can be a Hallmark card, but you've done a really wonderful job. And the notion of a cicada, why a cicada? Because the cicada, as I understand it, uh, is a little insect that we hear buzzing often in the summer. Is that the one? Yeah. It just it creates this hum, and it's all, you never know where it's coming from. Uh, I, I just yeah. thought that was a beautiful uh, image, that this sound is just always with us. I presume you're mostly uh, pondering musicians that have been lost, or were there any particular people that came to mind when you when you wrote that song? Well, one specific friend of ours had a connection to cicadas and they, they would appear under his balcony every year and he would document them and make posts about them. And to me, it was just like, there's a metaphor in that. Yeah. 
I mean, it was, it's just a tribute to him and that the, the connection is very direct, but also like the metaphor in the cicada is they live underground and they, they germinate for like 15 or 17 years or something before they like spring up. And that's kind of what punk, that's what our experience in punk is, right? Yeah. We like make our music and no one can hear it because it's under, under the ground. And every generation, like one of us comes up and reverberates to like the whole world. Yeah. And that's what this person did, right? He was like a once in a generation voice and he developed with all of us in the mud and in the dirt. And then he like sprang out and everyone heard his voice. And so that's sort of the, that's what the, that's what the song is. And when we were, we were finishing it, we were doing it at this nice studio in, in a coach house in Toronto and it was summertime and there was all these cicadas like singing in the trees. And so that's, that's what the sound is at the start of the song is us recording that Hmm. those sounds happening while we were like finishing that specific song, which was quite cool. Yeah. That's lovely. I mean, I asked Jonah about some of the humming uh, that he's been engaged in on, I think, a few different uh, recent fucked up records. That yeah. also reminded me. It's not. I don't believe that's. No, it has nothing to do with that song, Cicada. But he hums on track three. I think he hums at the. Yeah. Does he not? Uh, by the way, I also compliment the other song that I think I wrote to you right away. I think I might be weird. Is a really yeah. fantastic song, but it's the one that I was first. It's the second song I believe on the record, and I was like, "What the hell." What the hell is this? Yeah. <laughs> and I've grown to love it. I've just grown to just, I'm like, this is my, one of my favorite fucked up songs now. I don't know what the lyrics are very mystifying to me. Do you want to say anything about that real quick? So I think I might be weird. I have a little bit of like a nautical theme that runs through fucked up Yeah. for some reason. Like I'm not, a, I'm not the most nautical person in the band as has been well-documented Jonah literally lives on boat but (laughs) (laughs) um i like being on a boat like i have been on a couple cruises that i think are fantastic fucked up plane on a cruise we also took on my insistence because i didn't want to fly we took a ferry a two-day ferry from osaka to shanghai through some some of the globe's choppiest seas and on our concept album david comes to life there's a song where the action leaves its setting and it, it takes place on a ship, which is called Ship of Fools. And in the last couple of years, I've been just reading a lot of like old white guy stuff, like the Greeks, you know, the Odyssey and stuff like that. And there's, mm-hmm. it's all, it's just all ships all the way down and oceans and, you know, wine, dark sea and all that nonsense. And when I was writing this record, again, I didn't want it there to be this like overarching theme and I had that I had had that title in my head for a long time. I think it, it has a nice ring to it. I think I might be weird. Something that might shock you is that a lot of people have said that I'm weird in my life. Like I, something I hear a lot. I'm, You're weird. I'm that flum- thing you did flummoxed. I, I can't believe yeah. this might have occurred. So it's it's something that I think about a lot. Not a lot, but you know. And the song, the song takes place on a ship. It's just sort of a capsule story about a guy who comes to one and he realizes he's on a boat and he very quickly realizes he's not, he's not like everyone else on the ship. He's not supposed to be there. 
and he's being carried off to a destiny that's that isn't his against his will and he's trying to escape and i just sort of wrote it as like a nice rhyming story like i didn't have really an intention to it i just liked putting the the syllables and the stuff together and yeah it's really like bah, 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 bah. yeah but you know as you do after i wrote it i was like oh that's that's my life experience has been <laughs> being a weird person just like finding yourself coming to you on a ship that isn't your own yeah being carried off to a destiny that you don't recognize you know well so that's an interesting way of putting it because i was pondering there's a few things i forgot to do in the last uh, bit there um uh, which was to ask you if you'd be interested in telling us who you were specifically thinking of with Cicada. But I can also appreciate uh, why you'd maybe not want to do that. Before I go much further, did you want to divulge who inspired that song? I mean, it's very obvious who that song is about, but people are going to listen to that song and want to connect it to their own life. So it's more about that. Okay, fair enough. So the other thing I wanted to get to beyond, I think I might be weird being somewhat fantastically autobiographical uh, is I wonder because he's not here and I likely won't get to ask him about it. Do you have an overarching perception of where Damien was coming from with these songs? Because unlike you, who I think like you admit or state, you will obfuscate some of your personal experience to be more universal in what you're conveying lyrically. Damien's songs on this record seem particularly personal a lot of I pronoun uh, usage. And when I hear what I, particularly when you read the lyrics, you're like, oh yeah, I've, I've heard him address some of these things in the past in interviews or in, even in songs. Yeah. I feel like I'm getting a personal sense of where he's at. There's the devotion, there's the questioning and anxiety. As we suggested earlier, I think his own sense of complicity in making the world better and potentially worse at the same time. Anyway, that's my reading of it. What's your take on where he's kind of at, where he was at when he was writing these songs? I think Damien's sort of like artistic guys is a guy trying to reckon with his success and his like transgressions, right? Like, yeah, there's a lot of the word isn't like Catholic or whatever, but there's that sort of vibe in a lot of Damien stuff where, he uses lyrics as confessionals, right? Well, it's very Where, religious. I mean, it seems very religious. If I, if you, a lot of Damien's early lyrics are just, they're all religious stuff. Right. And yeah, a lot of that's yeah. to do with this, like trying to atone for something, but also just like using it as an interesting spiritual metaphor, which is like a lot of punk does. Yeah. And sort of like, you know, we were both early on in the band, we were both like probing mysticism and I was doing it from like a nature way. And he was doing, he was doing it from a spiritual way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and this is what he he goes into a lot of his interviews too, right? Like he he has always been reckoning with his own success and feeling like undeserving of it. Yeah. And Damien's personal life, right? Like he's he the word isn't success again, but like he's had a lot of success in his personal life, right? Like he's he's done a lot of amazing things. He has a really amazing family. Mm-hmm. He's gotten himself into a place where he wanted and it's the same way with him in his artistic life, right? Like there's something to both of us where we weren't really good at doing anything else. We're not really employable. And we ended up in a band just because that's what we were good at doing. But Damien specifically is like the kind of charisma that he has. You can't imagine him anywhere, but in front of 
a bunch of people on a stage with a microphone, right? Yeah. He seems like called like called to that, but he doesn't take things lightly. And the last 10 years, 15 years of his lyrics have, I think, all been about feeling guilty about achieving like exactly what he wanted to yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where a lo- there's an anxiety in a lot of his words, especially on this record. You know what I mean? Like looking at his peers and seeing how peers have changed and pondering how that reflects on him and his own ideas. You know what I mean? Like it seems on a little bit of a shaky ground, hmm. but yeah, I don't know. That's, that's been my take kind of on his lyrics. Well, and I, I think if we want to push the one day concept within the, we really only talked about it so far in terms of the process, but you've alluded to it a few times. I'm sure Damien feels the same, like this notion of how your life can change in one day, um, the mis- the mysticism around that, the fact that it just like in a, in a sort of random moment, your whole life can change for better or for worse. Um, yeah. I think that's probably permeating some of his lyrics as well. Yeah. Like I certainly can, can pinpoint moments that, set my life in a different direction. And I'm sure he can too. Yeah. I think the difference between us is that I always try to, I'm a very negative person, but with, <laughs> with the band, I try to make, I try to compensate for that by making the band seem very uplifting. Yeah. And he's the, he's the opposite, right? Like he's a very jovial, nice, friendly guy. Yeah. But in the band, he's airing out his anxieties yeah, that's, and sort of like yeah. his guys is, is a, is a frustrated person. That's interesting. Huh? I never, that's a really, well, who better to encapsulate <laughs> the dynamic between well, him? Maybe. Well, yeah, him, but yeah, I don't think he'll respond to my emails. Anyway, it's uh, it's a lot to think about and a lot to chew on one day. It's another wonderful record. Um, you said you've got 900, potentially 900 fucked up records on the go at any given time. Uh, knowing you the way I do, I wouldn't be surprised if you already have another fucked up album done. What can you tell us about future plans for the band? Oh, and by the way, you're, I know you're planning to tour, uh, as much as you possibly can. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of these, uh, things? Is it a really extensive tour? And, and within that, what I was saying a moment ago, um, what, what, what else is coming beyond one day? Uh, that that in terms of records that you or can, tours? that you can share. Well, both things, I guess, uh, the tour, the touring. Let's start with the touring. The touring is going to be pretty expen- extensive. Is that correct? And expensive. I. Expensive. It's both. It's probably going to be both. We're going to do the normal touring that you do. Okay. We're going to go to the all those spots. Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of records that we're working on. Oh, good. We have a bunch of Zodiac records left to do, so those are being worked on. So the people telling me or saying in public this could be the last one, are they saying this knowing? There's like 15 other, 20, 30, whatever you said, 900 other things. Well, I think only one person <laughs> has been saying that. We we know why that's the case. No, I like I said, I think two. Uh, at least two people in the band have conveyed it. One in the bio for this record. Uh, I haven't spoken to Damien directly. But Sandy also said like her approach to working on one day was like, this could be it. So I'm going to do... I think what she, if I recall correctly, and people have already heard it on this episode, she said she was trying to give it her all and realize she was actually yeah. overplaying uh, because she thought this could be it. So she wanted to, to go all out and then realize that wasn't actually serving the song. So she brought it down a notch. 
But that mentality, whatever. I think there's just a, we've gone over it. It sounds to me that uh, there's no reason for them to. Th- Do you think that this could be the last time we inter- we talk to each other? That's why you have so many questions. Well, by the same token that you're, I don't really often think about things this way, but sure, it could be. I could stop doing this. You could stop wanting to talk yeah. to me. This could be the, your last podcast ever. It could be. I, it's This is getting a little morbid. I don't want it to be, but it could be. Yeah, it, it could be. I mean, that's what... It's funny that you talk about being very positive. The concept of one day is a little dark. Um, well... The notion the that... Good, that I, but it's, you know, the intention for me was never... The record isn't called the last day. No, I it's know. Called what like <laughs> I know the promise of one day is that you get a next, you get another one. Tomorrow. Absolutely, I said that to someone recently too. Like uh, if I if we bombed this interview, we could always we'll both do other ones and make up for it. Well, I can tell you, we definitely will be doing this interview again. <laughs> I don't agree. I think it yeah. went very well because we I'm... both overcompensated <laughs> and we got to get we got to tone it down a notch. No, I don't agree. I think this was really lovely. Uh, Okay, Mike, uh, where can people go to learn more about uh, Fucked Up on the computers and the telephones? Like you on my phone number? Yeah, give us your phone number right now and uh, we'll all call you. No, is there like websites, uh, Instagram, uh, social media? Does Fucked Up have an Instagram? Yes. Yeah, and you've got, are you, are you sticking with the Twitter even though it seems to be falling apart? Well, I signed up for host. Yeah, so did I. Just to grab the URL. Yeah. Up. Yeah. And then I sign up for whatever the other one is, the colorful one. Uh Hive? Yeah. But then I just deleted it from my just yeah. Nothing's changing. Do you feel like you know? I I did I did it. I got the Mastodon, the Hive, and the Post. But I just You got it before all the other Vishkatas? There are a billion of us, you know. It's it's like Bill Smith in India. You know how many house trucks there are in the world? No. Five. Five total? Yeah. What's the origin of your name? No, six. It's Ukrainian. There's only six? Are you kidding me? Like I'm not kidding you. So we looked it up once. My brother has two kids now, so it's a different number, but we looked it up. My friend Stefan had this app, and it showed you like rankings or something of last names. Yeah. And it, there's th- there was three Halicheks in the world when we looked it up. Me, my brother, and my dad. Oh. Yeah, I don't have that experience. Do you know that the most famous Vishkana is a yeah. beautiful woman uh, who plays a? It's a soap opera villain in India. And yeah. do you know about this? Why would I know about this? I, I don't know. I maybe I told you, but yeah. So there, I just googled the name, and you're the first. You're the first. Yeah, I'm the first one. But there's still and there's like five pictures of you. Yeah, they're not that still. You have a discogs. I'm not. I'm not seeing this woman actress. Well, it was pretty bonkers for a while i would get tagged every day i'd get a i forgot i had a yeah. snapchat and every day i would be like someone in new so i get an email that said someone in new delhi is trying to log into your snapchat they were trying to <laughs> hack the vishkana why do you have a snap i don't remember why i got it i it's, it's, you're like 45 i've never old. used it i just signed up with the same thing you did i i was like well i better get one in case uh someone takes my name Anyway, this is so she didn't have it. She no, didn't already but have I, but, it. This but was like I, two weeks ago. I don't remember when. No, this this phenomenon. I don't know. I was getting tagged on Twitter as being Vishkana yeah. on the soap opera for like this happened four years ago. It was very popular and very strange. And uh, that's like Jonah got hit up by Jonah Falcon. 
Jonah's Jonah Falco from Fucked Up. Jonah, who's Jonah Falcon? He is a adult entertainment oh, industry I actor. See. That's and he wanted to do a collab. Oh my god, <laughs> that's. Okay, well, I didn't expect this to end this way. Uh, all right, so people can find Fucked Up on the internet and on Post and maybe on Hive. Um, if we can go out on a song from this yet-to-be-released record called One Day, Mike, what would you pick yeah. What would you pick for us and why would you pick it? Well, I like track three. You like track three? You don't know the names of your own songs? You like the song Huge New Her? Yeah. I alluded, did I allude to this song? I think I did. Well, there's, this is the humming one. There's humming on it. There's humming on it. And what does that expression mean? Huge new her. It doesn't, well, there was a laundromat near my house that uh, closed down hmm. and they had all their signage left up on the, stuck to the window, the, un, the inside of the, not the, in, the inside of the window. Yeah. And, at some point, they were advertising huge new washers, a huge new washer, <laughs> uh-huh. and some of the letters fell off, and so for like a year, it said huge new her, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was captivating, and I was at a cafe trying to write some lyrics like right next door, and I it had a nice ring to it, huge new her. Yes, you sing about a washing machine in the song, The Laundromat, yeah. and uh, you actually invoke a uh, huge new her. Okay, well, that's, see, positive. It's about. It's a comedy. It's about, like, um, <laughs> Greek ladies yeah. from thousands of years ago yeah. congregating to wash their garments mm-hmm. at this, and I turned it into this place where they would congregate and there was like an oracle fixture there. And so it became this thing where these ladies would all go to this washer zone, which I guess in those times would have been like a rock or something. Sure. And they would get their fortunes told by the oracle. Yeah. So you actually uh, invoke, a, is it, am I saying this right? A peplos? That's the actual name of the garment, right? Yeah. I, I have no idea how to pronounce it. Okay. Well, but yeah, it's Greek to you. It's a, it's a cooler thing. <laughs> In a lyric to say then toga. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, all right, yeah, this is a great new song from a wonderful new uh, Fucked Up record. The record is One Day. This is Huge New Her by Fucked Up. Uh, Mike, always a pleasure to have you on this show. Uh, and to record, can't wait to redo this and to re- in a couple days and just try to do it a bit better. I was just going to say, and to record a single yeah. interview and not redo it. Uh, it's always yeah, nice well, to, we'll do, have to. It's always nice to do that with you, one. Mike. Uh, thank you so much uh, once again, and uh, I'll, I'll see you soon on tour. I, I, I gather, and uh, best of luck. Well, you'll see me in a couple of days on Zoom and, or Zoom. Yeah, when we real re- when we pretend to, to redo this interview, but for some reason I yeah. forget to hit record. Anyway, nice to talk to you again, Mike, and best of luck in the future. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, well, what, yeah, we'll do it again one day for sure. <laughs> Hey, Damien, how's it going? 
Doing good. It's uh, good to finally talk to you, I guess now on the record. We've been talking off the record for, for a hot <laughs> minute, but it's good to finally connect with you now on the record. It is nice to have you uh, back on the show after uh, a considerable time uh, not being on the show. It's really lovely to have you back on the show, and it's a momentous occasion. I want to begin, uh, before we get into this great new fucked up record and your great new songs on it, uh, where in the world are you today, Damien? I'm in my basement. Um, which is where I spend most of my time these days. And it's uh, where I kind of record the podcast. And I just got a microphone and Jonah came over from the band and helped me set it up. And, and I now I'm going to start doing vocals down here too. So oh. I'm, re- I'm really, I'm really like a, a broken little boy living in the, <laughs> in, in the basement now. <laughs> there is this movement. I, I, I somewhat, I subscribe to it a little bit of, not leaving your house as much as uh, we used to. I don't know if it's, that's just how I'm living. Anyway, you're saying that's where you're heading. I've been there, you know, and it's, it's yeah, actually yeah. like been a, it's like a fear of mine to be honest. Cause it's um, my Nana, my grandmother uh, was uh, agoraphobic and was oh. like a, one of the kind of like original pioneers, I guess, of someone who has that diagnosis. Yeah. And she ran us like a support group for women in Montreal. And it was very, um, like, you know, extremely proud of what she was able to do, kind of, you know, taking, you know, ownership of her life with it. But it's, uh, it's always been a fear of mine, you know, and mm-hmm. I, and I, it's that I'm going to be that person, but I do have that tendency. And I think the only thing that really gets me out of it is having kids and, my poor fucking kids, because sometimes they have to deal with the fact that I, I have these anxiety type freakouts when we're, yeah. we're out places and new places. But, um, yeah, so I've always had that tendency. So yeah, I, I, I took to that aspect of whatever we've all went through, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, pretty naturally, to be honest. And that was something that I didn't struggle with. I do relate to what you're saying. And I do worry about my own kids because I'm very adamant that they wear masks and, be careful and all that stuff. And, uh, thus far we've been really fortunate. We haven't, uh, as I'm speaking to you anyway, we haven't gotten anything really bad and, uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to, we're staying up to date on all the stuff, but I do think my daughter in particular would be like, I can't wait for this to be over. I'm like, yes. Cause other kids, other kids at school aren't wearing the masks and other kids when she goes over to their houses, aren't wearing the mask. So yeah, I, I relate to what you're saying and I don't know where, I'm not agoraphobic. You're not. We're you and I, as outgoing music people. I don't think we're agoraphobic. We're just adapting to a changed landscape. Does that make sense? That makes sense. But I think in my natural, you know, like I don't go to shows anymore. It's, uh, I think it's why I can do the podcast that I do is because I've kind of dropped out. And I, so I don't have any, whatever, quote unquote, ownership over punk rock anymore. So I'm able to separate myself enough from it to kind of like look at everyone's punk rock as being valid as punk rock. Hmm. But, but that's because I don't go out anymore. Like I'm not involved in the local scene. I think if I was, I'd be much more adamant about DIY hardcore being the prevailing form of punk rock or the only valid form of punk rock. But at this point in my life, I, I, I don't go out. I don't go to shows. Like occasionally when a friend's band comes to town, but there's bands I want to see all the time and I'll have plans to go and see the show. And and then I just, you know, I just can't do it. I see. Sometimes so, it feels like there's chains on me. You know, like I remember one oh, night man. Hmm. 
I didn't mean to cut you off there, but like no, I, I really, <laughs> I feel like I'm opening up. <laughs> Please do. That's why I hate. <laughs> I know. I just feel like uh, you know, there's, a, there's a chain chains on you where you can't leave the house. You know, in a way. Like I remember going to a show, not going to the show, um, and just feeling because I couldn't get out the door. Like I just physically after dealing with, you know, going out to the kids with the, the school, dropping off at school, picking them up from school, making dinner, mm-hmm. you know, like l- luckily Lauren and I still at the time, but I think that night she was out or had a friend or something or anyway. Uh, I, and I was just so exhausted that I just was like, I can't do this as much as I want to be there and experience this thing. I, I can't, but you know, that's the, I guess the benefit of the podcast ultimately. Listen, I want to tell you, you're not alone. I can at least tell you from firsthand experience, you're not alone. I don't go to shows anymore. I try to stay home as much as I can. Um, the thing about doing the work that your podcast, Turn Out a Punk, and the show that I do is you're around. You're at least in the house and around, I think, is one rationale for it. It is time-consuming, and you're busy with it. I know that from my own experience. I'm sure you're very busy with it and thinking about it and booking guests and Editing it, it's all uh, very time-consuming, but I'm here. And um, what I wanted to follow up with you about, because I'm wrestling with this myself, um, Mercedes, in their latest iteration, came through uh, Edmonton in October, and they did three nights, and I went to see them. Coincidentally, that same week, Daniel Romano's outfit were here, and I went to see them. Those are the first shows uh, that I have attended in a long, long time. And I don't know, you and I are roughly about the same age. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's a lot going on with you psychologically, personally. When you say there's chains on you, like that's a whole other level. Cause I, but I feel that, and I attribute it to the pandemic. I gather you're not attributing it just to that. But it must be, a no, fa- is it a factor though? Well, I think when I'm at home, I just want to be... At home, a hundred percent. And in fact, like I've been to shows, you know, and I do go to shows. Like I make it sound like I never go to a show, but I, and I have been to shows post pandemic. Yeah, not many, but uh, you know, I found I most of the shows I've been to is when I've traveled for stuff. And I think you know because that's where I I associate going to shows with not being at home because that's for the last ten years because of having young kids, babies. Yeah. Uh, so when I've been at home, I've I've been at home. Um, and, and, you know, trying to, you know, you know what it's like, you gotta, mm-hmm. you gotta be home yep. to help yep. To, yep. to pee there. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> and it got to a point where the only time I was experiencing shows was when I was, when I was on the road. Now my kids are a little bit older and Lord and I have a little more independence again as, as individuals and people so we can go and do stuff. But, you know, I feel more comfortable going to shows like the first show I went to post-pandemic like there is a post-pandemic but i mean in the kind of like thawing that happened a couple years ago the first time was i flew out to the dinosaur junior summer camp event that they had Mm -hmm. and saw negative approach and dinosaur junior play and it was the most incredible experience of my life (laughs) like i just was like in 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 like tears like i I don't want to I'm not exaggerating, but like, you know, and I wasn't like sobbing, but at the same time, like there were just tears of like, I never thought I'd get to do this again. And 
I can only imagine how you felt because, yeah, you, you and me are, well, music's your life, right? Yeah, and shows have meant a lot to me, uh, obviously. Uh, I th- Well, maybe it's not obvious to everyone listening, but yeah, I have talked about this on the show. Like, it was routine for me if I could... If I could negotiate the family stuff and everything was taken care of, it wasn't out of the question for me to attend two, three, four shows a week. And it went down to, we moved to another place and I, it took me a while to get out. And then by the, so we moved, just so you know, Damien, like at the end of December 2019. So I had a couple months to attend stuff. And then there was this <laughs> pandemic. And what I think, what I think is going on with me is I got used to not going to the shows. At first it was hard. And then I just was like, well, I guess none of us are able to go. So what am I, you know? And also I would, there was nothing to miss in Ontario. Like that was my biggest fear. Oh, everything's going to happen in Toronto or Guelph and I'm not going to be there. And that's going to be hard, but you know, I've seen a lot of stuff. It'll be fine. And then when everyone couldn't do anything, I felt like, okay, I started to feel weird when everyone got to go to stuff again and I was maintaining the stance of not doing it. And I think I've just gotten mostly used to it. It was really nice to see the Sadies again. It was great to see Daniel Romano's outfit. I hope to see, I'm going to, you guys are coming to Edmonton. I will be there, but I also am learning to live without certain things. I'm sacrificing things because of this collective state we're in and I want to protect my family from serious illness and I don't want to be a burden to them if I get a serious illness, you know? So that's where I'm coming from. If that makes any sense to you. I get it. Yeah. I think for, for me, it's, it was largely like, I guess like punk specifically like, you know, the DIY hardcore thing was, was just, it was almost like a religion, you know, and I, I bring it up all the time now when I talk about how punk becomes a religion, but it was just so much of who I was and my identity was like DIY, specifically hardcore. Yeah. And then, you know, fucked up being this band that existed in that world and it felt like it was a short period of time, but it felt like we would always exist in that world. And then to eventually get kind of assumed up into the larger sort of more mainstream quote unquote, like indie rock world. Like there was just uh, a sort of like loss of identity of mm-hmm. like who, who I was, who I was as a person, I guess like, but not so much because like th- that, I think I, I kind of was like always, you know, a little bit in, in touch with, but more a loss of like who I was, culturally you know if i wasn't going to be a diy hardcore kid then what kind of shows would i go to like what kind of music would i take in and it took you know a long time for me to kind of be like well i guess i could like be in other types of music too you know and i I think that's the thing about diy hardcore though like unless you're like a lifer and there are definitely lifers and people that put in work to support these scenes but for the most part you age out, but there's not necessarily an, a defined age that happens, but you almost like have to pass on that DIY hardcore zeitgeist to another generation of kids that are going to take it in a different direction, but they're going to be able to thrive off it in the same way you thrived off it. And that same way it got passed down to you by another generation of kids mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that, you know, aged out or you know, moved on from it. And that's like what keeps that thing so vibrant and and pure. But it was like, yeah, it was like a weird thing to kind of like not 
be able to hold on to, you know, and like mm-hmm. it, it, a lot of, you know, and what it, it's what I'm obsessed with talking about is like people's, the damage that this thing kind of leaves on you in, and not to overstate it in its importance, but it is important. Like religion is like, I, my moral code, once I did kind of like turn my back on the waspy religion I was handed was turning it into focusing on punk and hardcore. And that my morality came from Ian Mackay mm-hmm. or Propagandi or Bikini Kill or Fifth Column or, you know, just like learning about all like Noam Chomsky. Like I got into Noam Chomsky because of Propagandi. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate this. And it's interesting, some of the uh, terminology you've used here, because I, in asking, I asked Mike about some of your songs, um, mm-hmm. because I sense a shift in you. Some of the things you were just talking about, uh, I think, are paraphrasing lyrics from the song, Nothing's Immortal. And I'm just going to read a couple of the lyrics out so you can tell me what you think of where I'm coming from. And mm-hmm. I keep hearing that same old punk song echoing around my head. There's something kind of eerie about it. I hope they'll play it when I'm dead. I've heard that something is better than nothing, but I can't help wondering if this isn't my thing anymore. I asked Mike specifically, like, do you think Damien's talking about aging out of punk? And of course, I think Mike did respond to this, but also was like, that's kind of Damien's thing. That's Damien. That's a question for Damien. And I was like, yes, hopefully I can talk to Damien. And here we are. The other thing that I noticed in the release information, I got the bio for the album. This is a quote from you about singing and writing songs, actually, for the first time on a fucked up, a proper fucked up album since 2014's uh, Glass Boys. The quote from you is, it almost felt like it might be the last time I'd ever get to record vocals for anything. So this sense of fatalism or finality Um, it's long been a part of your aesthetic, I think, but does it seem, um, more pointed right now? Like more urgent to you? Um, and by the way, if I've mischaracterized you in any way here, please let me know. But does it feel more, has it been feeling more urgent to you as you've gotten older and ponder where, what your role is in DIY, hardcore, punk music generally? I think like it's, it's funny because it's almost like, like specifically nothing's immortal like that song i think is about almost aging out of the idea of having heroes in punk bands oh i see more than it's about aging out of punk bands cuz like it's 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 very much specific kind of well a couple specific kind of incidences and incidents i've heard on the podcast where you like you you believe in these songs you believe in these lyrics but at the end of the day these people are people and they have their failings And, you know, the, the, you know, and, and as much as you don't want to do it, you're ultimately going to fail people. Like I think of the people that have fucked up tattoos Mm -hmm. anytime I do something like, uh, in terms of, you know, like, well, if we played this thing or if we gave our song as a sync to this thing, like Mm -hmm. if someone had a fucking tattoo, would they (laughs) like how, how bummed out would they feel? Because, you know, and, and, and ultimately it's this weird thing where you're like, you're as an artist, you'd not be holding anyone's expectations, but at the same time, like it, there's like a punk thing that you carry with you 
the whole way through. And there's kind of like a, a, a need to be beholden to that, or I don't know, maybe, maybe we all feel the need to kind of not we all, but some of us feel the need to keep people accountable to that in some sort of way. But then you hit a point where you're just like, God, like I can't, you know, I can't help it, but I'm going to wind up failing someone. And hmm. just like these people have failed me and, you know, but like at the end of the day, all I'll do is listen to this kind of music. Like it, as much as I said, like I listen to different types of music, like I listen to like, <laughs> like killed by death records and like old hardcore and Japanese burning spirits and Brazilian hardcore pretty much exclusively. That's all yeah. I listen to yeah. these days. And, uh, and it, you know, it's, which is, you know, fine. And that's, that's what I love. And I think, but there is like, definitely you're right about the fatalistic side of things. And I think prior to this record, I think there was like this sort of, I think that's part of having an anxiety disorder is mm. for me, at least has been manifesting your own worst outcome. Yeah. You know? Sure. Yeah. That and you know, sorry, go on. Well, I was going to say, but also maybe being down on yourself a little bit. I mean, that seems to be a major part of what you're going through. No, I've always been like this, you know, like, I think that's the thing is I've, I've been humbled. I think I've been humbled in the last few years by the reality of the world, you know, in a way. But I think like being humbled in like, like, I think the fatalism now, I think in terms of writing the lyrics on that last record, when I was saying that, I didn't mean in like, I might die or fucked up might break up. I mean, like, because we were facing my worst possible outcome. Like the thing that I was scared of that I was fo so fatalistic to try and avoid happening fucking happened, which is the thing that I secretly loved that I pretended to hate getting taken away from me hmm. and lose and, you know, and losing it. And like, you know, there are days where I was like, no one's going to mosh again. Like we were there, there are days, you know, like yeah. there are days we wouldn't, we wouldn't, you would cross the street when someone came near you. Right. We were so scared of this. Of thing. course. Yes. Yes, we for for a community that is really built on galvanization and gathering, uh, which I would argue, I mean, again, I've talked about this before. Like the first time I saw Fucked Up, you happened to be playing next door to the house that we were renting, in a basement in Guelph, and <laughs> and I when I lost I, my wedding ring. Oh, did you? I didn't. So it's oh my god, did you forever? It's gone. You never got it back. Uh, no, someone found it. And I got it back, but the whole show stopped and looked for it uh, at the end. because oh. I I went thank you everyone and threw my hands out to the audience and add you know and love to them and I was so sweaty that my ring oh just my went. God. <laughs> oh, I must have missed that because what happened was I went over to I wasn't. That we had a lot of mutual friends, but I wasn't super familiar with you guys. So I walked over mm -hmm. there and I got there late enough that I couldn't get in. I had to be at the top of the stairs watching you guys play. Um, and it was very. We talked that night too, though, right? I I swear we talked that oh, it's night. Possible. I think that's it's possible. Then I remember seeing you and then knowing you more through the CBC thing afterwards. But I remember like. Yeah, that's that. that we that, talked. That's possible. I, I, I was amazed that these punk kids had done this because that's how I came to Guelph, like having basement shows. Like, that was an eye-opener for me. But it was very crowded. And all I say, I only illuminate or, or highlight this because that's what punk was. It's a lot of cramped yeah. spaces, a lot of people crowding into Who's Emma or wherever in Toronto. Um, but one of the things totally I... Totally ventilated cramped spaces. <laughs> but one of the things I took away and I feel really informed, one of the things that punk taught me is that to be more cognizant of the space you occupy. 
Um, and I, I was in a, in an exercise recently. Um, I, uh, I agreed to be on Mike Watch show and he asked me to send him songs that I'd recorded or been on. And so I was digging into some post hardcore music I made a long time ago and reflecting upon what I used to sing about. And, um, one of the lyrics that popped out to me that I, I thought was interesting for me anyway. How does it go? It's something like, uh, I have made a place for myself in this space I found and to never look beyond the edge of your skin. I, you know, I'm directing this anger at something. When you're writing songs, you don't, the use and the eyes, like it's a narrative device. And I had something in mind when I was writing this, but it was selfishness, I think, uh, of not really knowing what your, your existence is doing to someone else. You know, I, I say this to my kids all the time. Like, yeah, like when you eat a granola bar, someone has to deal with that wrapper. At some point, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. everything we do causes um, a kind of a chain reaction in the world. So I feel in a few, there's the f- fatalism and the whatever we were talking about. But then I look at these wonderful songs of yours that really provoked a lot of thoughts for me, like Lords of Kensington, which I just, I, I will be honest with you. And I want you to maybe please summarize what you, where you think the song is coming from first. Uh, cause I don't want to do a poor job of it, but that got me thinking about what it is we've done in underground culture, what it meant for us to be at Who's Emma in this space, thinking it was really magical for us. But what was that doing to the people who used to use these kinds of spaces? So what I'm getting at is that's what I'm picking up from you is a sort of recognition mm-hmm. of what is my role in this world and how have I impacted it positively or negatively? Is that swimming around for you right now? Absolutely. Yeah. A hundred percent. That's the, that song was written walking through Kensington market and looking at like, do you remember when Nike Presto moved in there? I mean, I never lived in Toronto. I would go to who's Emma shows from, we all lived in a bunch of us camp would always, our crew would come down from Guelph. Um, so that doesn't sound super familiar to me, but go on. Maybe it'll come to me. It was this venue popped up called Presto and it was owned by Nike and it was sort of like this activation for the Nike Presto shoe, which this is in a very bygone era where this stuff really upset people, which is now seems so quaint because I'm sure everyone would be like, oh, great, a Nike activation. Wait, what street was that on? It was on, um, oh my God, whatever the main, it's the one that hits South Street. It's the one that hits Spadina, right? Uh, like the T. I know. I, it's the one that hits college. Oh, sorry, college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It tees. We're call it tees at college. Yes, I think I actually went to something there, and we were like, "What is going on?" Or we heard about it. Yes, because there was some murmuring. This is like late nineties, probably. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I remember exactly. early two thousands, maybe because I think fucked up was already a thing. I remember some ker- like a band. Okay, I remember. Yeah, that makes sense for me too. That I remember some kerfuffle about it. Maybe I didn't attend a show there, but I remember people not being happy about it, but please go on. That sounds familiar to me now. Yeah. 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 Like the whole kind of community got up in arms and I say community, I don't mean necessarily just music community. I mean like, you know, Kensington market as a, as a thing and was like, get out and chased it out. But this was, you know, in a long line and of, of these kind of event spaces that would pop up that would bring people from outside of the community into the community. And while at one point you like, yeah, it's, it's great for local restaurants and, and certainly bars and things like that. Another thing, this is like also where people buy food, yeah, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and live and, you know, and, and, and sell weed and, mm-hmm. and 
lived off that stuff and tried to survive and thrive in that kind of world too at that time. And, and then here, you know, these spaces are, and I mean that in, in places that I went in places that changed my life in places where we're for foundational, not necessarily the presto venue, yeah. but a drift, a drift skate shop, which I think at some point started doing vice parties. And, and, you know, I certainly was involved in hosting TV shows with vice and stuff like that. And I think it's weird because culture and youth are always going to look for spaces for things to happen at. Yeah. But the problem is it's always going to be like the lichen or the thin end of the wedge for what's to come. And it's, it's stuff where they're going to chase out the adrifts. They're going to even chase out the, the prestos. And, you know, this is a community that fought forever to resist a Loblaws opening. <laughs> and then the Loblaws opens and it's because there's no community left to fight because it's been taken over by different things. But, you know, not to say, but there's no buts at the same time, there's also a culture that is everyone from you fucked up to, to all sorts of different artists that found, you know, space at, at who's Emma yeah. and, and place at who's Emma that they couldn't find space and safety. And the anarchist free space after that too, which was a incredible space that, you know, ultimately kind of fell apart, but at the same time, like, you know, and, and planet Kensington and there's just like sort of this tradition of the Greeks before that in Kensington market, the laundromat venue, like there's just sort of this tradition of these spaces that so many great musicians and artists and, and talented people found voice and were able to create great art through these spaces. But at the same time, there, there is a cost and I'm not con Deming because I'm guilty. I'm questioning because uh, I think you have to. And then the cannabis stuff too is, you know, I think, you know, being involved once again, making cannabis documentaries at a time, like interviewing Trudeau about weed, like all this sort of bullshit, like it, it kind of like brought in legalization, which brought in gentrification of cannabis, which brought in fucking Fantinos. I'm sorry if I'm swearing way too much. No, I, no, I you can you that. can swear. And, and you're on to something really interesting because we have been engaged, you in particular, in really cool shit and it gets commodified. But there's mm -hmm. part of us that I think, all, and I'm speaking generally of our sort of milieu, our community, it becomes this bizarre negotiation because we think the thing we're doing or involved in is really fucking cool and we wish more people found out about it but not too many more people because <laughs> once that happens people with money come sniffing around and say hey we're a giant car company why don't we help you do a line of seven inches or hey we're a giant shoe company what if we fund your cool thing so that we can get name recognition for everyone gathered because we want to reach your I'm talking in cold advertising terms right now, capitalistic terms. Like, we mm -hmm. want to access your demographic. So what if we brand your event and you can still do all the cool shit and you can afford to do it better? So then as punks, you're like, well, they're fuck. What if we just use their money for something good? But the punks you and I admire most have always been like, fuck that. I'm no. So I hear the conflict in you. I appreciate it. I 
go through it sometimes when I I don't have any control over the ads that sometimes show up on this show. I just have agreed to some minor amount of revenue from it. And sometimes I wince because I don't want to be associated with these companies. And I write an email saying, hey, I heard this bullshit. Can we not can we knock it off? And they say, yes, fine. <laughs> but they, you know, again, this is the good negotiation. They want to work with me because I'm doing cool shit. I've agreed. I've made some compromises because I need to justify the work. I'm sure you've been here. Um, anyway, oh, I'm, God, yeah. I'm, I'm on a rant. No, it, it, yeah, go ahead. No, dude, that's why. That's that's why. Fuck. That's why Turnout Punk doesn't have any ads because yeah, yeah. you know how can I have some of these people on that espouse this? But then the irony being, I'm on Spotify and you can listen to me on your cell phone, which is full of conflict minerals. Yes, and we are. In this sort of like the 90s, it's so beautiful to look back on that time period because we had this alternative punk economy yes. in our hands, right? Like yes. you could buy your food at the co-op where the punks worked and then you could go to the punk show and you could buy the punk records. And like, yeah, it's not made with punk petroleum products necessarily, but, you know, there was this sort of independent economy where you could kind of – be like, okay, we're getting our bean source from here and it's all this. But now, now it's all changed. And I'm not condemning it, but like turnstiles in a Taco Bell commercial, you know, it's, which is, it's not, but this is where we're at though. We don't condemn anything because the nineties you're no. talking about, if any, like you said earlier, someone with a fucked up tattoo, if it were the nineties and someone with a fucked up tattoo heard you did something that they thought was heinous, they're getting that shit lasered off. You know what I'm saying? And now yeah, we're just yeah, like, yeah, yeah, well, this is the compromise I make too. Cause I admire you for not having ads on your, on your show. I did pull my show off Spotify and for some reason the listenership went up. I was like, people are like, you know, you're going to lose a child. I'm like, I guess, but I fuck, I can't abide by this company. And yet there's some ads that run on my show that I also can't abide, but it's such, anyway, I, this is not what yeah, I, like I, <laughs> I, I was going to pull myself from Spotify and then I'm like, well, fuck it's bundled into my cable package. I listen to music on Spotify. Yeah. yeah I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm responsible for my own downfall. And like, it, it also accounts for very little of my listenership. Like when I look at my numbers, it's, it's a negligible amount. It's the second yeah. most, but it's, yes. it's still, yes. You know. I don't, I don't know. And I didn't mean to get into the, uh, too inside baseball, but I, I think people rallied around me cause I took it off of there. There's no other explanation yeah. for it to go up so much. I mean, so yeah, I, we, but again, I'm being, I think like you, it's hard to condemn people's decisions right now because it's so hard to make any kind of, man, we're given all of these giant companies this content for free and we don't get anything from them. Like it's no. just, please, Patreon, hey, the odd ad, like up to, it's, it's, it's not, we can't, and musicians go, have been going through this for longer than you and I. I mean, sorry, you're a musician as well. Like, you know what it's like. Like, you, you try to make the money you can by doing the art you love, but it's hard, hard to make a living. So, it's, yeah. It, but, but it's also, you know, it's, it's just where society's at. Like, technology, the only, like, technology exists to get rid of humanity, yes. dehumanize us, yes. get rid of us, because we are the most expensive thing. And so, just like, you know, Spotify negates the labels, negates necessarily some of the artist stuff, like mm -hmm. negates the, 
the it just makes it about the commodity, which is the song, and it's worth point whatever whatever of a cent, and that's exactly what it's worth. And yeah. you know, and and it's but at the same time, look what it's done to food. Look restaurants, like like families, generations have passed down these restaurants, and then you have a quote unquote ghost kitchen pop up on a food app offering the exact same stuff. Yeah. And they deliver. So the restaurants forced to compete on the food app and, and lower their prices, but they've got all this overhead and like, they can't do it. Like, it's just, that's what technology is going to do. It's just going to dehumanize us and turn us into things that can make money or, or be, be money. I don't know. It's, it's bleak. Like, this is the fatalism, I guess, is that... that... This is just it, though. Like, I get accused of this a little bit, too. And I'm like, no, it's the reality. And I know that's hard for us to sound objective when we convey such thoughts. Because I get it, too. Like, worrying about mask wearing or the pandemic generally or health and wellness. I mean, yeah. It, you get If you start to point out the reality of things, people say you're a drag or a bummer or fatalistic you know but you like i really admire your songs on one day because you seem to be in a very reflective mode and i think a very health i mean i know you're struggling and i i hear the struggle and read the struggle in your lyrics but like when i look at broken little boys for example that's a very incredible array of thoughts it's very open and candid and you seem to be in this zone of trying to figure out where you came from and why you are the way you are personally. And then, like I say, when you, when I go through a song like Lords of Kensington, you're thinking about a whole community of people. Like, how did we get here? What did we do together? And the same for Nothing's Immortal. Anyway, I'm all over the place. I just think you're, you seem to be in a really good place. And I assume in, the, in this regard, sorry, I, I don't want to say you're in a happy no. place, but you seem to be in a very thoughtful place. Let me put it to you that way, like a very self-aware and thoughtful place. And I think it's worth mentioning that for some reason, it's been roughly nine years since lyrics of yours have appeared on a fucked up record. So given what everything I just said, can we talk a little bit about what you suppose has prompted you to contribute lyrics again to a fucked up album? given, like I say, your state of mind. I was pretty checked out after Glass Boys. Mm. You know, like Mike and, you know, the the process of recording Those Your Dreams was kind of a nightmare, you know, and I, mm. you know, I have actually like legitimately apologized to Mike for that because uh, he came to me with the record and he's like, okay, let's pick songs. Let's write this record. And I wrote a bunch of lyrics, but I was doing that wrestling TV show. Mm. I was, I was, doing my own my own thing and then just when doser dreams was kind of finished my mom passed away and so i was checked out during that whole time just dealing with my own shit and then my stepmother passed away yeah i'm so uh, sorry for your loss damien i'm very sorry to hear that thanks man thank you it's 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 been long enough now that it's like obviously it's never not painful but at this point i'm like i can be reflective on it Mm. and look at where i was at and where put like not to be selfish about other people's deaths of course but where it did put me and it it de- it made me hard to deal with you know and like mike you know carried me as a songwriter you know i think he did a lot of unbelievable stuff like mm. i was really inspired by dozer dreams like going in there and recording it and then definitely inspired by you're the horse in terms of what him and jonah and all the other musicians obviously that played on it too were were able to write 
and just kind of like, it made me, when I went to this record, like it made me want to just kind of come back to it and really engage with it yeah. and write lyrics from a place of, and being, being in the place where I thought this was going to be the last time I was writing lyrics, not from some sort of like, I'm going to quit the band, you know, or, or I'm going to, something's going to happen to me, you know, like more from a, no one might want to see us play music again. Yeah. You know, and like to be back in that place was, you know, where I'm writing music lyrics from a, I want to do this. Uh, not because I, I feel like I have to do this uh, was, was like a real liberating kind of experience. Yeah. I did write one song in between. I wrote a song that's on this Australian only seven inch about my mom passing away. Mm. And uh, that was a fucking very raw recording session going in to do that. Uh, I'm not sure. Shout I'm, out to Dylan. I'm not sure I'm familiar with that song. That was a fucked up song. Yeah, it's a fucked up song. It's only on a, it was like an Australian only seven inch that I think we only did 300 copies of oh. that has a, a baby photo of me and my mom on the cover. Oh, man. And, uh, oh, wow. I really, uh, like, just like a most, <laughs> and I think the cover, I think the B side actually is the, uh, tragically hip cover. So oh. it's not even really a record as so much as just like an open, you know, sob of a, of a release for me. And what were the two songs, uh, yours and the hip song that you did? Oh, uh, God. Um, <laughs> Sorry. This shows my lack of knowledge about the tragedy that I'm blanking on the name. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no. I'm, I was been a hundred percent legitimate about it. Like the hip are a band that I definitely can appreciate. I like the, the early records uh, a lot for, as, as a younger yeah. kid. Yeah. But then they were, and I told Gord this, you know, like many times, but yeah. they, you know what they was like? It was like a, it was like why some people hate Bruce Springsteen yeah. that are of a certain age. I get it because the people that liked it were not cool. And, and I don't mean that not like cool, actually like hip. I mean, like we're like jock assholes. No, sometimes. no, they were assholes. I don't think you were saying they weren't like, you know, like you said, uh, nice, good people, whatever, or discerning people. Yeah, I grew up with them. Most of them are pretty friendly. But then I would go like I saw them in a field when I was... 14 or 15 or something like that. And another roadside attraction. That's correct. Were you at that? Yeah. In Markham? No, no, but I do remember those things happening. Yeah. Cause they were like cultural events. Like they were like, I guess what Grateful Dead shows would have been at a certain point for a generation of kids. But it was eye opening because throughout the day, you know, people like Daniel Lanois played and Hothouse Flowers mm-hmm. and Crash Vegas. That's the one I went to. Midnight Oil. And throughout the day, it was weird being around grown, mostly men, screaming hip, hip, hip at every band. And then by the and it was, but, and I liked all the other bands. Like I enjoyed seeing them play. And then, of course, when the hip comes on, I'm, I'm relatively close to the stage and I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle the mosh pit, if you will. The, I, I just, I got, that's my first real memory of having anxiety, to be honest with you. I'm like, holy shit, I'm going to die. It's like a stampede. I got to get out of here. And it was weird. The band played well, though. I will say. I remember the band playing well, but I... Anyway, that was the environment. It was brutish, I guess. It didn't feel punk rock. It was just brutish. And uh, so anyway, all this to say, I didn't mean to go on a tangent about the hip. I do love them. I love Gord very much. And like you, I was lucky to get to know him a little bit. So, you know, these are the great fortunes in our lives, uh, I I think. (laughs) Yeah, like he, he like, you know, and there's that, that Sloan song. But it's about consolidated. But like you know, it's not the band I hate. It's the well, fans. Gore took and, Gore took that very personally because some 
I know. There was a CBC show running at the time going through like songs and some host, uh, sorry, it was like a, is this song good or not? And uh, some woman uh, on CBC said something like that. Like, oh, it's the thing about the hip is it's not the band I, I, I hate, it's their fans. And I was at the Juno Awards in Winnipeg the year the hip, it was the same year that this broadcast went out on the air. They were being inducted into whatever, the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. And he quoted it. He quoted her to make fun of her. Because, like, what would that band be without their fans? I mean, just as you're saying, what would <laughs> Fucked Up be without their fans? Tattoos or not? Like, your fans, you can't choose your fans. And uh, no. that's a really snooty and snobbish thing to blame someone for. Or I always find it weird when we make fun of one-hit wonders. I, I, I find it distasteful. That's not the band's fault. Uh, I don't think, you know, unless they're brazenly trying to just make a bunch of money. Like, how many one-hit wonders, if you dig through their catalog, you're like, wait a minute, there's great records here. Why have we all, as a culture, decided <laughs> that this one song is worth making fun of because it was popular? Anyway, this is where my punk and whatever, uh, love, or, love for culture kind of collide I, sometimes. I think it's one of those weird things, though, because, you know, you're right, you can't control... You can't really control the narrative that exists around your band in, you know, in, in regards to like, you can control the narrative in terms of like what you put out there artistically, but in terms of like how that's going to be interpreted by people, you don't really have say or control over that. And I find that very true with Gordon, as much as he like, you know, hated that, hated that line. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it's about consolidated, like he straight up, Chris Murphy straight up says like something consolidated and like I've asked him. If, if I drink concentrated OJ, can I think consolidated is okay? It was a, it was, yeah, yeah, it was a, it, it was a, it was a very ironic diss at snobbery in music. Like I think, uh, but also I forget Chris has gone on the record talking about this, but the hip are not, to your point, the hip were not even mentioned. I don't think that he had them no. in mind. Like it just got ascribed to them. I, I seriously but, think because of that CBC show, frankly. Yeah. 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 And I, but I think at the same time, because also Gord and the tragically hip and what they represent. And, and I only really ever met Gord. I have, I've only ever met Gord. Um, yes. Or I only met Gord. Yeah. But he, but he did not in any way embody what the kids that I didn't like that liked that band no. in school. 100% embodied. the opposite. He, 100% the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. 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 He was not. And it's weird because they, I think in Canada, in the Canadian music industry, it's, it happens a lot more than it does in America, where you kind of get assumed into being a band of a certain type at a certain point, you know? And like, I mean, like bands that become huge, where it's like, oh, you're just taken up as being like a rock band now. I, 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 I have, I have come to recognize that band as being a bit more advanced than they get credit for. Um, I also will say that uh, I know that we can have some cynicism when a popular entity gloms on to a cooler, less popular entity, and then you start to wrestle with, do we just think they're cool because they're unpopular? Like, do we do we get our pom-poms out because we are rallying behind a thing that is subversive? All I'm getting at is a true measure of a band to me of, of the when they're, when they're at a profile and a success level of the hip. One true measure of where they come from for real is who they ask to open for them. 
and who they get to play their festivals. You mentioned another roadside attraction. The the next year, I believe, was to me, what a remarkable challenge to that fan base we're talking about. Eric's trip, the inbreds, uh, I forget who else was on that year. I saw the first time I saw the, or the second time I saw the hip, Change of Heart was opening up, which were a pretty obscure mm-hmm. but important band to them at Maple Leaf Gardens. Using their platform, I think the way Fucked Up has tried to do too, by the way, and, and other bands who feel like, I want to give back to my community by also turning the music fans in my audience onto really cool music. Yes, there's going to be some tourists in the audience, but Gord had that. Like anything they ever curated, it was pretty remarkable who they got to open with. You guys, you collaborated with him in Fucked Up. Like he had an ear for what was good. And I don't don't think it was opportunistic in any regard. I think he just honestly, I know him as a music fan. He was an advocate for shit he thought was interesting and good. And sorry, I've gone on a ramble, but he he's someone I think about a lot. Uh, For someone I didn't know well, for a heroic figure who's been with me for most of my life and the kindness he's shown me over the years, personally, I just think about him a lot. So sorry for going on uh, <laughs> and on about this, but no, I think dude, you're also, I, I totally like, get you're, when, by the time that this record ends with Roar, you're also, I think, like I mentioned earlier, you're reflective and stock-taking. There's real love in that song, Roar. And there's real love, I think, in in all the songs of uh, of yours on this record in particular. Uh, I know that I'm generalizing, but do you feel like you're mostly coming from a place of love and celebration and gratitude for the most part? Oh yeah, like all I would say, almost all the songs are are about things I genuinely love. You know, like I love Kensington Market. Yeah, you know, I I love my 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 children. Like Broken Little Boys is about having trauma and realizing you don't want to pass it on to your kids. Yeah. But then also realizing that society's pre—it's <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, every every everything yeah. is designed to, in your words, if I may paraphrase, break little boys. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and it's just uh, you know, and and, it, and and no one hears you when it's happening, and it's just yeah. So that's like that's about loving my kids and not wanting them to be like me or dealing with the shit that I uh, deal with or or just be, being bad people to the people around them, you know, like just trying to raise good people. So that's love. There's songs about Lauren, my wife, and, you know, having to be married to a person like me and, and how much love and just gratitude I have for her for putting up with everything. And yeah. like, there'd be no me and fucked up without her. I would have quit a long time ago. Like, Holy God, she has kept me in this band. Over Absolutely. The no, I, I feel, I feel that in these songs. And like, I think you have, you've conveyed that love and gratitude. Certainly I can hear you singing to Lauren in that, in that last song on the album roar, but I want to commend you. Like I just have been really blown away by your lyrics by the time of broken little boys, where you get to this really fascinating part uh, that I think delves into your religious background. Frankly, the world was shaped by broken little boys. And on the seventh day, the Lord heard us pray, father, give us some self restraint. But God was corrupt and the whole world is fucked. And a question struck, is God a broken boy? Which you answer, Damien. God's just a broken little boy. And now I offer with regret. And it's meant with all due respect. The world was messed up by these broken little boys. I'm just telling you, man, I found that really fascinating and a really interesting turn from your family 
certainly like pondering what it means to be a father in this world and to be a parent in this world with sons, because I have a son. It just hit me. And then to go to this route of like maybe the origin story that most of us, most people rather who are religious, I should say, subscribe to is broken, flawed. I mean, I think that's kind of where you're coming from, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was built like it's just, I don't know, like Nicole Panter, who managed the germs. Mm -hmm. She's she's a brilliant, brilliant person. And when she was on the podcast, she talked about how sometimes punk is people with trauma passing on their trauma to the next generation or to the next person to pass on that trauma to someone else. And it's just, when you think about that in terms of human history and looking at this incredibly horrific human history that, you know, people (laughs) exploit for entertainment constantly, uh, there's just this trauma that's passed on from one generation to another. And then it's inflicted on the people around them. And, you know, like you read this book, like, and I've read the Bible when I was a kid, yeah. you know, and I, yeah. I have not reread it. I should probably reread it now, but I did read it as a kid. And like, it's a problematic book. <laughs> yes. You know, yes, of course. <laughs> yes. Some... I've heard about this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think people have talked about this before. <laughs> I don't think I'm the first to come to this realization, <laughs> but if this is my moral code, like this is why punk was so important to me is because it gave me a chance to have some sort of moral code, but not subscribing to this one that was being given to me by, you know, like uh, the the minister I remember seeing one time give this incredibly homophobic yeah. speech yeah. and just like unabashedly. And he was a super nice guy yeah. otherwise. Yeah. But here he is saying this most hateful shit I've ever heard. And my mom was a flight attendant. Like I grew up around gay people, like and, and queer people, and and you know, it was not something that I found threatening at all. And hear him in a position of power pass it on to kids that might not have that same sort of luck and benefit of having exposure to these people in real terms. Like yeah. how how can we not help but pass it on to the next people around us when the authority figures that we worship are giving us this shit. I appreciate that. And I, I totally appreciate where you're coming from. I do. I probably should follow up on something you just said. My mom was a flight attendant. I grew up around gay people. What does I know that, that's, that's problematic. What, I didn't understand <laughs> what that, what does statement. that mean even? I know. I don't know. What I, that, I, I, I will be, <laughs> I meant that in the sense that there were uh, a lot of gay people involved in the, in, in flight, in being flight attendants. Then. Oh, like, I, think, I didn't No, I didn't know that. Is that true? Oh, I did not know that. Okay. No, and I, and I don't mean to be, cause it is a stereotype. So I oh, don't mean to contribute okay. to that stereotype. Okay. <laughs> I thought, but maybe, at the same time, it, <laughs> I thought she was working I, for a certain airline that I hadn't no, heard about before. No, I'm okay, sorry. Okay. I should have, I should have maybe clarified, but, but it is it is kind of a stereotype in terms of um, a job that you know that uh, maybe in that era in particular in that era in particular okay uh, I, I mean specifically and there were definitely non-gay male flight attendants okay. too Just, I don't mean uh, to say that every male flight attendant I, was gay at that time but there I, I were I, certainly <laughs> a lot of gay men in my life you know that my mom was coworkers with and friends with and. You know, it wasn't something that was new to me. And and my dad, you know, like my my dad had gay friends, too. So it it was like I just meant to say that in the sense that it wasn't something that was threatening to me. And so I was able to just completely resist this, you know, speech as bullshit. Yes. 
Yes. I'm sure there's people around me that didn't have that luck and benefit of being exposed to people that weren't necessarily straight, quote unquote, people in this church. Well, again, I I appreciate your perspective on this and, and other things that you've brought to to the fore on this record. Um, for what it's worth, it's good to have you back writing songs. Uh, oh, I appreciate in that. In the Thank context you. of Fucked Up. And I, I really, as I've conveyed to the others on this episode already, I really love this record. It's got some things like I think I might be weird is a real left turn for me, as I've discussed. And there's some other just full-on beautiful songs. I, I just, yeah, congrats. It's great to have you back and, uh, and, and those sorts of things. So now I, I don't want to spill too many beans about the future. But this mm-hmm. 24-hour, one-day concept uh, is intriguing to me. Your colleague, Mike, often comes up with these kinds of concepts. Do you have a sense, uh, different kinds of concepts, I should say, do you have a sense yet of where fucked up, even though you and Sandy, Miranda, have both sort of indicated, like, this could have been the last one. Uh, both of you have conveyed this uh, to me and in public already. Do you have a sense of what's next for fucked up? Uh, anything you can say about what, oh, yeah. you, what you hope to accomplish in the near future? Yeah, like I, I want to, I want to reiterate that I think this time the, this could be the last one. Felt like that early on in the songwriting kind of process for me mm-hmm. because for me, I, I spent like twenty four hours working on each song in terms of yeah. lyrics and vocals, and you know, so I was writing these songs, some of them in the beginning of the pandemic, and at that point it felt like this might be the last time I write. You know, and going in the studio and demoing stuff like this might be the last time I get to sing any of this stuff. Yeah. Whereas at this point, like, yeah, I've definitely I feel like Mike, you know, with Jonah, obviously there, too, are he's in one of the most creative, brilliant periods of of any songwriter to kind of come out of punk. And I'm someone who's obsessed with this stuff. So the fact that I get to be kind of like yelling over the shit he's writing uh, I'm I'm along for whatever he's got planned yeah. and I'm going to, you know, write myself. So I think we're going to have another record that's going to be kind of like a reflection of this record. Oh, cool. That's going to be, we're working on it now and all the themes and things like that are going to be finding kind of a, an answer to themselves in, in the next record. And oh. yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that. And, you know, I've already started kind of like working on certain songs and uh, it's cool to have, a sense that a song doesn't have to be the end of its life and that the song can kind of have a second life in a different body. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of where the record's at now. I'm already working on the follow-ups for some stuff and, uh, you know, and things I'm like, oh, shit, I wish I had said this or I wish I kind of expressed this thing <laughs> last time and clarified it. So I get to go back and do an edit. Well, that's the thing about one day that we always tell ourselves, like if a day is going badly, there's always another one. And maybe that kind of philosophy applies uh, to you. You made one record. I mean, it does. It does apply to bands, too. You make one record, you celebrate aspects of it, but you have regrets. You fix them on the next one. And so in the one day format, if, if you if you keep following it in any regard or if this this exercise taught you anything, all of you, I'm guessing it's that, yeah. Things are what they are, and the next time you do it, it might be better because you've learned something from that one day, right? I think every time we've done an LP, it's been almost like a completely different approach, you know? And I think Glass Boys, writing lyrics for that, like there was this sort of fatalism, uh, but like a complete different sort of way where I remember writing lyrics for that being like, uh, you know, this this might be the last thing I ever write, you know? Like I could 
I could, something terrible could happen yeah. and, and I could never write another song, you know, and, or before that David comes to life, we were writing to a theme mm-hmm. before that with chemistry, we were kind of writing to a theme. Yeah. Um, in the hidden world, it was just such an exciting period to be in the studio, being able to do an LP. Yeah. Uh, they all weirdly also felt like they could be the last one for different reasons, but you know, this time it felt, you know, it was like kind of like strange liberating yeah. in it. Well, like you said, you've got Mike who's, Seems to have an endless well of ideas. So, uh, and Jonah and, and everybody, Josh, everybody in the band. So as you know, I'm a big fan and it's, uh, lovely to see you all making music and doing stuff, uh, including touring. I know, uh, like I alluded to, there's touring coming up. Uh, on that note, uh, Damien, if people want to learn more about you and your podcast or anything else, uh, where would you like to direct them? I'm on, uh, like at left for Damien on those terrible social media things that <laughs> we shouldn't be promoting, but we're now committed to for life. Seems that um, way, yes. But uh, you can also find me on podcast platforms that are also ruining <laughs> us. Yes. So yep, yep. Uh, I turned out a punk is the podcast I do. And uh, I appreciate your support, man, for this band. You've always been there and, and it really um, means a lot to have that. Oh, well, I, I thank you, Damien. It's been a long relationship in a way, uh, going back a long time. So I'm I'm happy to be a peripheral part or a helpful part if I can be. So thanks for the kind words. Um, I asked the others to pick songs to go out on, but I want to go to you to to do that now as well. I think uh, if if everything works out the way I think it is, you're the last interview on this mega fucked up episode. So if there's a song from one day that you'd like us to go out on, can you pick one and tell us why it comes to mind? Uh, let's go on Broken Little Boys because I guess that's the song we, I think, talked about the most. And uh, it's a song that originally was about my brother and <laughs> about mm-hmm. being a, a sibling. And then I kind of wrote the lyrics and I still had time. And I was like, you know what? These lyrics are not it so i rewrote it as the last song on the record and hmm. went and redid the vocals and uh unfortunately my brother got robbed of his tribute but you know he's <laughs> he, he's a broken little boy like me so he's he's in there okay all right we'll send this out to tristan is that who we're sending it out to basically at this point uh yeah let's send it out to tristan sure. uh, my long-suffering brother my <laughs> one of the many people that has to suffer through dealing with me in his life I... <laughs> brand new music from fucked up from their excellent new record one day this is broken little boys uh damien it's uh, always a pleasure to speak with you i hope you enjoyed this and uh i hope we talk again sometime soon anytime maybe you can mend the fence between me and steve albini uh, uh okay let's take this off the record i don't know what this is about <laughs> okay <laughs>
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, looky what we have here. You made it. You made it all the way to the end of this gargantuan fucked up episode. Thank you for listening to this uh, episode and thanks again to Sandy Miranda and Jonah Falco and Mike Halichuk and Damian Abraham from Fucked Up for appearing on this, the 747th episode of Creative Control. Episode 747 mentioned flight attendants. That's a weird coincidence to me, if you know how numbers and jets work. Anyway, yeah, thanks again to everyone from Fucked Up uh, who was able to participate. Josh, I'll get you next time. Uh, on this, the 747th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One podcast network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode you're looking for, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, which is at least two months behind, please visit vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook if you wish. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Vish Creative, or you can follow me directly on Twitter and on Instagram at Vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to support this uh, podcast and all of its endeavors. All the work that goes into it is really supported by you folks out there who uh, make time to and, and, and spend some money, I guess, uh, donating to the Patreon. $6 American or more grants you access to exclusive content. I believe the last time that fucked up were on, or second last time, they, they're on quite a bit these days. Uh, Josh and Mike and I talked about some current obsessions, and uh, at some point maybe I'll, I'll release more uh, stuff from my fucked up interview archives. But there's lots of other stuff too. Plus you get episodes earlier than everybody else. Uh, and if you're interested in receiving a Creative Control t-shirt, just message me on Patreon and I'll get you one while supplies last. So thanks for supporting the show with your dollars. It's uh, I'm not going to lie to you. It's a lot of work. But uh, I appreciate I like doing it. So anyway, that's enough out of me. Thank you. Speaking of thanks, thanks again to the uh, wonderful Alberta record retailer Blackbird Music, which you can learn more about and, and order things uh, there on their website. It's blackbird.ca. also want to thank Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their in-kind support for this show. And there's links in the podcast description, so if you're interested in any of the things I just said, click on those links. Thanks, as always, to Jim Guthrie for letting me use some music of his on the show. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you once again for making it all the way to the end of this gargantuan, mega-fucked-up episode and for subscribing to this podcast and telling your friends about it. I hope you will check out One Day by Fucked Up. It's amazing. And thanks to Merge Records for all their help with all this stuff. And uh, 
And you. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I really appreciate it. I hope you're well, and I will talk to you very soon. Bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.